0: Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly.
1: Hey, it's Gonzano I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback.
2: Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Konzano's Baldface Truth.
1: I'm coming in hot today. I'm fired up about a few things, one of them being the Portland Timbers MLS soccer organization. Why do they get such a pass? Why aren't city leaders demanding that the Portland Timbers, the Major League soccer entity that operates the building formerly known as Multnomah Stadium or PGE Park, now called Providence Park, why aren't they requiring them to play on a uh, level playing field, so to speak. city of Portland still owns Providence Park, but Peregrine Sports, the limited liability corporation, owned uh, and uh, comprised of Merrick Paulson, his father, and some other investors, are the operator of Providence Park. They're the operators. That holding company got control of Providence Park Of course, they poured a lot of money into expansion. Of course, they've invested heavily. Of course, they're the primary tenant. I understand all that. But they have systematically squeezed Portland State out of their home stadium, a home stadium that they first played in in 1949. 1949, Portland State played its first football game in that stadium. In the 60s, they started playing regularly in that stadium there were other tenants that came and went including a minor league baseball team you know we know that was a baseball ballpark at its at its heart but the uh, biggest slap in the face from the timbers organization came last season when the uh, timbers uh, rented out leased out to portland state's old home stadium to oregon state remember that oregon state was renovating Reser Stadium at the time needed somewhere to play a game so they leased out Providence Park and played Montana State right under Portland State's nose. The, the indignity of that yeah, I don't think you fully realize unless you really know people at Portland State. I remember at the time Bruce Barnum came on the show and he talked about how, uh, how, uh, how infuriating that was how disappointed he was in watching that happen. Maybe somebody at City Hall who listens to this show Will pick up the torch. Will decide that uh, you know they've had enough of watching the Timbers kind of just uh, take the operating agreement that they have with the city and uh, stomping all over the other uh, stomping all over the other tenants who are in the building. I just think it's really disappointing. It's uh, it's bad. I think it is. Uh, I think it's disrespectful. To Portland State, I think it's disrespectful to taxpayers who who pay for that building. Taxpayers built Multnomah Stadium, and people may not remember, but you know, Oregon Oregon State used to regularly play Washington there, and Oregon and Oregon State regularly played the Civil War football game at PG Park or Multnomah Stadium uh, or whatever it was called at the time. And I, you know, I this came up during the Oregon Washington Week as people Washington fans were pointing out that they that Don James and and the University of Washington used to complain about having to drive all the way down to Eugene to play the Ducks or all the way to Corvallis to play the Beavers. And instead, they would play that game in Portland for years and years. And it was utilized as a football stadium long before it became the other kind of football stadium. I have nothing against the Timbers other than maybe, like, this is an organization in recent years that has said, hey, we're going to do better. Hey, we're going to do the right thing. Hey, we've lost some trust with the public, and we're going to operate on the, on, the, on the level playing field with some transparency. And yet they still continue to keep Portland State out of Providence Park, forcing Portland State to play their football games 14 miles from their own campus. And they have systematically done that, and I'll tell you how. It's insidious how they have done this. They, they uh, first of all, raised the fees on Portland State to, to a point where Portland State just couldn't afford it. This is how you get a tenant out of an apartment. You want to raise the rent. You want to be a slumlord. This is how you force a tenant out of the apartment. You know, you raise the rent as much as you can. You make it as uncomfortable as possible. You know what the Timbers did? Uh, Peregrine Sports and the Timbers, they told Portland State, hey, you, uh, you can play your games here. But you're going to have to play on a Wednesday or a Tuesday. We can't accommodate you on a Thursday or a Friday or uh, anywhere near the weekend, and uh, certainly not a Saturday. And, oh, by the way, if you're going to play in the stadium, we're going to paint the football lines as faintly as we possibly can on the field because we don't want the perception from our television partners that, that we're playing on a field that isn't dedicated to soccer. Well, guess what? You don't own the field. You're just the operator. Yes, you poured money into a renovation. Yes, you've added amenities. Yes, it's a better stadium because you're part of it. But damn, act like you are a good partner here if you are the uh, Portland Timbers organization. So I I keep wondering, will some interested city commissioner take up the fight on Portland State's behalf? Let's get Portland State back in Providence Park. Let's have them playing where they played in the 1940s, 1960s, and where they belong, right near their campus. Or maybe the Timbers will hear this. Maybe they'll come to their senses. I doubt it. They're going to hear this, and they're going to be pissed off. And They're going to say, oh, look at Canzano. Look at, he's He's going off again. How do we get him quiet? Oh, somebody text him. Somebody call him. Somebody quiet him down and try to calm him down. Uh and or maybe ultimately they'll decide that maybe they should just do the right thing like they promised. Like, you know, it was just a couple of months ago or doesn't seem that long ago, Merritt Paulson, the organization coming out saying, Hey, we're gonna do better. We're gonna do the right thing. We're gonna be a good partner in the community. All of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that. Come on, do the right thing, let Portland State back in the building. We got a great show for you today. We're gonna talk a lot about college football. Of course, we'll talk some NFL, Major League Baseball, playoffs are heating up. What in the hell is wrong with USC? Is Lincoln Riley really starting to uh, whisper about wanting to go to the NFL? I mean, I know that we all kind of thought that. There's a report out of uh, the USC media contingent that uh, Lincoln Riley has been whispering about possibly wanting to go to the NFL and maybe piggyback with Caleb Williams and is that tied to the disappointing loss to Notre Dame? Is it just uh, you know a byproduct of hey this is what happens when you hire a coach, pay him ten million bucks? Eventually he does what he did to his former employer. Eventually he looks for greener pastures, maybe sooner rather than later. I don't know. We'll be talking about it today with Ryan Abraham of USCFootball.com, who's coming on the show in just a few minutes. I'm really interested to find out what's going on with USC one of the programs probably the most guilty party as you per, as you talk about the downfall of the Pac-12 conference USC and Carol Folt's decision to uh, backstab the other presidents in the Pac-12 table the discussion on expansion in the uh, in in 2021 and just say let's wait for 2022 and then subsequently uh, in July of 2022 announcing a uh, USC and UCLA we're going to the Big 10 conference uh, again, you want to talk about insidious moves and maneuvers that happen, the back channeling that happens in college football. Look no further than USC. But Ryan Abraham spits truth. He'll talk about the team, what is going on in the field. I'm wrestling this week with USC hosting Utah. Can't figure out yet. You know which who I want to pick in that game. Had a really good week against the spread last week. I went five one and one in all the games, but four one and one in the Pac-12 games. I, uh, of course, missed on uh, – I tied the Oregon-Washington game. I had Oregon in the points. They lost by three. That's a push. Uh, and, um, and naturally, uh, I'm trying to think of the game I missed. Uh, you know, I, I had – yeah, Notre Dame-USC. There it is. I was just talking about USC. So um, Notre Dame-USC, I missed on that one. thought USC would win the game outright, and they got boat raced and eliminated from the college football playoff picture, so to speak. How do we know they're eliminated? Well – Dave Bar Two, the College Football Matrix says bad losses are unforgivable in the eyes of the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. Like Oregon last year in in Week Zero, playing that game against Georgia, forty nine to three. What happened? Nobody forgot about it. Remember when you had Ree- we had Reese Davis on this show uh, late in the year last year, and he was we were trying to figure out if uh, Oregon could rebound, could. Uh, could Oregon then turn around and and right the ship, so to speak? You know, would we uh, would we have um would we have the opportunity to see Oregon overcome that bad loss and end up uh, as a team that ultimately could play maybe uh, for the college football playoff or make the college football playoff last year? And you know, Reese Davis came on the show and said, uh, no, uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, you don't know that like that loss. For Oregon um, you know it was, was too big uh, even listen to this conversation as Reese Davis was talking last last uh, November about the 49-3 loss against Georgia and how it just killed Oregon's chances of, uh, of getting
0: to the playoff or being considered Oregon is at number six and I've brought it up several times to the point that the Duck fans are probably sick of me saying it how does the committee <laughs> evaluate that 46-point loss to Georgia on the opening weekend. How big of a weight is that on the discussion surrounding Oregon? It it certainly is part of what we talk about uh, as we go through this. But the other part of it is they've
3: won eight eight consecutive games, averaging over 40 points a game, beating UCLA, uh, who's well-respected by the committee. And, again, we're looking at the overall body of work where it's not about one game, it's about what have they done throughout the entire season.
1: They can say that all they want, but Reese Davis and ultimately Dave Bartu says one of the seven criteria for making the playoff is avoiding a bad loss. USC's 28-point defeat to Notre Dame, a team that had lost multiple games, uh, is a bad loss. And so we'll talk to Dave Bartu on today's show at 4 o'clock about where he sees the playoff picture today. He he let me in on some of that insight. If you want to do some forward reading, he talked about the top four teams as he sees them right now. He he believes that uh, if, you, if the, the season ended today and the College Football Playoff Selection Committee had to pick four teams, he believes that Georgia and Michigan would not be included in the top four. Plenty of ball left to play, but he sees Oklahoma, Ohio State, Washington and Florida State as his top four. We'll talk to Bartu about that and, and maybe the possibility of two teams from the Pac-12 getting in. He told me that he did not believe it was plausible, particularly if Washington is the second team, meaning if Washington gets to the college football uh, you know, playoff, it will have to be as a conference champion and not as the runner-up in the Pac-12 title game and I think it's an interesting distinction because you know we all believe Washington sitting in the driver's seat right now in the Pac-12 but Bartu says if Washington gets to Vegas and loses to a one loss Oregon team Oregon obviously would step in front of Washington and he doesn't believe that Washington's resume in its non-conference schedule is gonna be strong enough for a second team to get in he says Boise State would have to turn the corner and become a seven-win team in order for Washington to look good on paper. So we'll talk to Bar 2 about all those things that need to happen in the background. And by the way, isn't it silly? Isn't it silly that we're sitting here talking in the middle of the season about a four-team playoff when we know that all along it should have just been automatic qualifiers and then some at-large teams and it's just silly that you had five major power, com- power Five conferences and only four playoff berths, and in some years, in a couple years, you got two SEC teams going, which means two other conferences, three other conferences are shut out in those years. It's just uh, it's ridiculous to kind of look at the landscape of things and see where we are, but that's where we are. And so, But buried in Bartu's comments, and I'll ask him more about this at 4 o'clock, is the, the idea that if Oregon runs the table... From this point out, that Oregon is going to be the representative in the college football playoff for the Pac-12 conference. He has no doubt about that, that a one-loss Oregon team, whose only loss, talk about good losses and bad losses now, only loss would be a three-point defeat on the road at Washington. He says that's a very strong resume, no-brainer, there in the playoff. Uh, I also thought it was interesting in the piece today at JohnConzano.com that Bartu said if the season ended today, or the rankings came out today, he believes that Oregon State would be ranked in front of Oregon, given that Oregon State has multiple wins over current top 25 teams. And so I think that's an interesting distinction, too. What do you want? Well, you want quality wins, which are wins against teams that win seven games or more. You want wins against top 25 teams, and Oregon State has multiple wins against current top 25 teams. And oh, by the way, that's based on the rankings at the time right so at the end of the season Oregon's not getting credit for beating in Colorado which was a ranked team at the time they played them Colorado will not look like a ranked team at the end of the season and so it's it's based upon how you finish not you know where you were you know if you were the eighth ranked team when they played doesn't mean anything you have to be the eighth ranked team now when the when the polls coming out. So we'll talk to uh, Dave Bartu about that coming up at 4 o'clock. We've got punch and audio, got great sound today, uh, fantastic clips. I, I, I can't decide what the be- best clip is, but I got, I'm going to share this one with you. Bill Simmons says he's going on the under on the Blazers' win total of 27.5. I kind of like him at 27.28, which now, uh, you know, I didn't see the line at 27.5. I thought the line was at twenty six. It's now at 27.5. Bill Simmons says, take the under.
0: It's the Portland Trailblazers. 27.5 is the over-under. And um, as much as I love this team as a league pass team, and I do like a lot of the assets, the West is too good, and something's got to give. And this team will be a seller, I think, December, January with Brogdon and with Robert Williams. Keeping those guys would be nuts. Maybe even Jeremy Grant, who they just signed to an extension. But I think this team will aggressively try to get more picks as we head to December, January. And that 27.5 is just a lot when every night you're playing a good team. So it's an under for me.
1: He's taking the under. Uh, we'll uh, debate that as well. Adam Silver also talking about some changes to the NBA season. And, of course, uh, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, Anna will be here for the 5 at 5. And then Spencer McLaughlin. Uh, our Insider at 750thegame.com covering the Oregon Ducks will be along to talk about this week's game against Washington State. No Jonathan Smith today. Oregon State said bye week he's on the road. We're going to let him go be on the road and recruit. I don't want to be in the way of that. Steven, Bill Simmons 27 and a half. He says under.
4: You agree? Uh I disagree on that one. I I think I think you're right. Like 28. 28- 29 is about right. I looked at the DraftKings app. You know, it's 28 and a half on that one, so it's even a little higher than what Bill Simmons had, and he still is going under on it. So it just kind of depends on what you uh what what sports book you're using. But I, I think I look at the Blazers and I know they're not a great team, but they have some good, like, veteran talent. And so I think at the start of the year, they're really gonna come out and they're gonna try to play Hard and win ball games, kind of like they did last season, right? You remember last season they came out, and they got went out seven and three to start the season. And everyone was trying to prove something, and then it all fell apart. I think that's how this season is going to go for Portland. I think they're going to come out with these vets. They're going to play well. They're going to you know come back and say, you know what? We don't need Dame. It's a new era. Uh, Anthony Simons going to step up. Robert Williams is supposed to be healthy and playing regular season game one, according to Sean Heiken. So I think the Blazers have a good start to the season, and then at some point it goes downhill. Injuries hit them. And then they do end up looking to trade some players. But at that point, they'll be right around, you know, that 27 and a half. So I would slightly go over uh, right now. But maybe I'm just being a little optimistic with this Trailblazer team. I
1: have them slightly over as well. But I, I had, how long I've been saying 27, 28, thinking that the line was at 26 was where I first saw it. It's now at 27
4: and a half. I don't like it there. Like, I wouldn't touch this for the a 10-foot pole. On the DraftKings app, is 28 and a half even. So what what would you do on that one? <sighs> I I I feel like that would have to go under at that point.
1: I think they're going to steal some wins early. And I think, you know, and I'm curious to see how the changes to the format to the season will affect the way teams show up. Because we've seen some Blazer teams in years past that get off to a nice start and play hard and catch maybe some of the more experienced, um, how do I say this politely, lackadaisically starting teams at the beginning of the year maybe they're not tuned in, maybe they're not playing all the way, some guys nursing some injuries, looking at the season like it's a marathon. I've seen some Blazer teams start hot and steal some wins at the end, at the beginning of the year just cuz they play hard. And so I I don't know if, you know, Adam Silver talking about the, you know, NBA in-season tournament and all this other stuff. I don't know how that's going to affect wh- whether players show up and whether players play and and load management and all that. How do you think that will play a role in the season?
4: I'm <sighs> I really have no idea right now, John. Adam Silver said the players are excited. I find it hard to believe that they're going to be like, you know what? We're excited to win the NBA Cup, is what they're calling it, and they're just going to make up some in-season tournament. But you know, it's one of those things where maybe, maybe it does. Maybe just just fake, uh, you know, competition, kind of like you know, in the in college basketball where they have preseason tournaments and teams get excited for that. So. I, I'm really interested to see how it works. I'm not super excited about it quite yet, uh, but we'll see when it gets to gets to the actual in-season tournament time. I, I could see maybe not a veteran team winning that thing. I think they're going to not take it seriously. They're going to be worried about the actual NBA championship. But you could see maybe a mid-tier team or even a young team that gets up and says, you know, we want to go after this and win it, not saying Portland because Portland's definitely not going to do that. They're not good enough. But, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what type of teams – are successful in this in season tournament. Let me
1: ask you this: In the Blazers' first ten games, what's their record?
4: Uh, I would say they're right around five. I say five and five, six and four. Yeah.
1: yeah, I and and I think they will be a pleasant surprise at five and five, and that's kind of where I have them. I can, I think they'll steal some games early, and I think young teams that play hard. May, and I'm and I'm just banking that this team's going to play hard for Chauncey Billups. I think that you'll see some guys who are fighting for minutes, playing hard and I think they'll beat some teams they shouldn't beat. Now, late in the year, if you ask me what their record will be in their last 10 games, I'll tell you it'll be like 1 and 9, 2 and 2 and 8, something like that. I don't think they'll be great late in the year and I think it will all catch up to them. But i I think in the first ten they could win. They could be five and five. And I, I'm looking at the schedule now, and I'm going. I, you know, I don't know.
4: Yeah, I agree with that because well, you look at this team. There's there's guys that have stuff to prove, right? DeAndre Ayton's even come out and said, you know, he's going to prove that you know he wasn't you know slacking off in Phoenix. He's going to have a big season. He wants to be the leader of the team. Anthony Simons is a guy that you know he needs to step up if he wants to have this team. He he's in the driver's seat to be the to be the face of the franchise right now. He's the best player on the team. He really can be if he steps up. We'll see if he does that. Same with Scoot Henderson. He has a lot to prove. So I, I'm with you. I think at the start of the year they come out motivated. Where some of these teams, especially the veteran teams, you know, they're not as motivated to play game one, game two, game three, especially you know up in Portland. So I think that you know the home games, the Blazers could sneak in a couple of those early in the season. I'm eager to see what this team
1: can do as the Trailblazers prepare to tip off a season. Coming up, though, we're going to talk about the troubles at USC. Ryan Abraham, he covers USC for uscfootball.com. A lot of uh, smoke about Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams. Does he want ownership in an NFL team? Will he ever get that? I think it's unlikely. But uh, what's going on at USC? Ryan Abraham is next.
3: Now second and 10. USC needs points for the conclusion of this first half. Williams, pressured, retreat, and out goes another interception. It's Benjamin Morrison who rises and picks it off right there in the sky. Hey, it's the same story. There's pressure off the side here. Creates a tough environment for Caleb Williams in the pocket. He's been so capable of making these plays, moving all over the place. Not tonight.
1: Caleb Williams uh, with... Uh, not a great game for by his standards. Three interceptions, 199 passing yards, only one touchdown against Notre Dame. It's been a uh, a really interesting year for USC as USC suffered a, a loss at Notre Dame, 48-20. They host Utah this week. Ryan Abraham, our friend and the best on that beat. And you know I bring the best on the show. USCfootball.com, that's where you can read them. Ryan Abraham joining us. What's the fan base been like this week for you guys?
5: Hey, John, thanks for having me. Um, it's been absolutely crazy. You know, For how many years, John, have we talked about USC just needs to get this right, hire a real AD, hire a real head coach. They shock the world, and they hire Lincoln Riley. They lose a game, and we have a portion of the fan base that's comparing him to Clay Helton at this point. It's unbelievable the fact that a lot of these USC fans are just really upset with what's going on. Yeah, I don't think the, the Trojans are trending in the right direction right now. There's certainly some signs of a national championship, uh, playoff quality type of team. It's a you know second year rebuild after a four and eight season. But it's still, you know, they're seventeen and four under Lincoln Riley. And I, I just feel like some of the fans are just stuck in like the Clay Helton mode where they only you know, the only option if you lose the game is to fire the head coach. It's really kind of bizarre. But I think A lot of the fan base, I think, is more reasonable. They're they're kind of seeing this team what it is. It's a team that has warts and a team that has – they definitely have some flaws, but certainly a lot of potential and the best player in college football. So you always have a puncher's chance, but they've not looked good the last few weeks. And uh, I don't know. I've never seen Caleb Williams look as bad as he did uh, Saturday night against Notre Dame.
1: Yeah, give me an idea. Let's start with Caleb Williams. What is going on specifically in your mind with him – Is it the receivers? Is it the offensive line? Is it how how teams are defending him? Uh, What do you see happening on the
5: field? I think there's a combination of things. The offensive line certainly isn't as good as last year. They lost a lot of veteran presence, and um, they felt like plugging and playing was going to work, but everybody's in a new position. Even the veterans they have coming back are playing new spots on that offensive line. So I think that's been a, a bit of an issue uh, and the wide receivers, too. I think Brendan Rice has stepped up a lot. Todd Washington's been uh, very dependable for Caleb Williams, but I thought a guy like Dorian Singer would come in and really be a huge part of this offense, and he hasn't been as big of a factor. Zachariah Branch, the two freshers, look electric. He hasn't been there all the time, but when he's there, he's made a big difference, but I feel like, too, that sort of like you, it's it's almost like this is a team that you know Caleb Williams can kind of save your bacon no matter, no matter what goes on, and Sometimes, you know, maybe even as a coach, it's like, you're sort of just kind of sitting back and watching him do his magic. And I think it's a lot to put on a, you know, a 21-year-old kid. So I feel like they need to, you know, on the, the offensive side, scheme things up a little better when things aren't exactly going your way. But they need the offensive line to play better for sure. And you'd like to see more of those wide receivers. Like, I thought it would be a really deep and talented wide receiver room, and it is. But not all those guys have been as productive. As we would have thought coming in, especially a guy like Dorian Singer, who was second in the Pac-12 last year in receiving yards.
1: We're talking to Ryan Abraham, USCFootball.com. Uh, the the rumors about what Caleb Williams might want in the NFL draft, if he even wants to be drafted, does he want ownership? Does he does he want brown M and Ms in the bowl? All the you know all this stuff. I haven't heard it from him. How much? How do you sort through that, Ryan, as you're trying to cover it and find out what is just rumor? and what might be really true as it pertains to Caleb's future and maybe the NFL?
5: I think when you have like a college player that's kind of transcending the sport and is on national TV commercials, there's going to be a lot said uh, about him. Um, and I feel like that's a lot of that. When you talk to Caleb Williams or you see him just what, looking at his body language after a loss like that, he was visibly upset. I mean, he loves football. He wants to win more than anything. I don't think he's sitting around worrying about having partial ownership in an NFL franchise or anything like that. I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to he'll be the number one pick. He'll sign a four-year deal with a possibility of an extension and just sort of go from there. Uh, I, yeah, I don't put a lot of stock into a lot of this other stuff that's going on. You know, it, For him to come back to college, I mean, I guess there's a slight chance of something like that, but you want to get that rookie deal started as as soon as you can so i i think there's just kind of a lot of hubbub around a guy that is just being talked about a lot because you know all of his media stuff he does right now in college football
1: report from another reporter in the usc media world saying lincoln riley may have been whispering about wanting to go to the nfl what do you make of that
5: uh that was from a reporter that hasn't been a reporter for several years hasn't been around the (laughs) team at all so i don't put much stock uh, into that one. I mean, I, I Lincoln Riley could go to the NFL for sure. I mean, I don't think that's like, you know, that would be a shock. I mean, you got Cliff Kingsbury get fired by the, um, you know, Texas Tech and, and get an NFL head coaching job. But I feel like, you know, listening to what Lincoln Riley said, how, you know, he does like being in a bigger pod. It, it, he, I don't think he liked being the center of attention when he was in Norman and, and having a, a nice house in Palos Verdes and his kids like to go to Disneyland and. I feel like he is enjoying himself and wants the quality of life part of things. Like a, a Chris Peterson was, I think, similar. Um, so I, if he took like if like the Chargers had a job open, he could do that. I, I feel like he would like to stay in Los Angeles, mm. uh, but you never know. But yeah, I don't. I don't put a lot of stock in the whole like package deal going to the, the Bears or anything like that.
1: We're talking to Ryan Abraham, USCFootball.com. This, this week's game with Utah has really got me tied in a knot. What do you what do you make of this game, and how USC will respond after the loss to Notre Dame?
5: I've been awful, John, at picking USC this year. Just figuring out how they're going to play. I thought Stanford would keep it close. They would blow them out. Then I would think they would blow out these other teams and they keep it close. I, you know, my gut is telling me like you can't you can't cut, like. Utah, you look at them; it's sort of like Iowa football, where they're not scoring any points, and they are like, "But they still win." Utah keeps winning, you know. And I, you know, until USC goes out and beats them, it's hard for me to pick that. I, so if I had to like lean one way, I mean, I feel better about Utah coming in this one than I do USC. But would you be shocked if like Caleb Williams throws for six touchdowns and they get crazy, and the defense plays a little bit better? And they don't have Cam Rising, and a one-dimensional Utah offense just doesn't score that much. I could certainly see it happening, but that's a far cry from like what I think is really going to happen. And this is a huge game for me, John, and for USC and for Lincoln-Riley. They you know, they, they lost this team twice last year. You just got your butts beat uh, in South Bend. There's a very similar makeup of a team, Notre Dame and, and the Utes. So I think this is a really important bounce-back game for Lincoln-Riley. They, they still want to win the Pac-12. They're undefeated in, in Pac-12 play, first place in the conference. But you've got to witness one because you got Oregon, Washington, all those teams coming up. So it's a huge one, but I honestly have no idea. I don't think I would be shocked at any kind of result from this one, John.
1: Give me an idea of what you think is wrong on the defensive side of the ball and how frustrated is Lincoln Riley. Fans are frustrated. Media are pointing it out. But I haven't heard it from him directly that, you know, would he make a, would he make a change at the coordinator position?
5: Yeah, he's been uh, defending Alex Grinch for sure and the defense. And, you know, on some levels, you could, you know, I get what he's saying. I think the defense is better than last year. A lot of the fans and people are saying, no, it's just as bad. And I, we'll see. I think this stretch coming up is going to tell you a lot more. They didn't give up a lot to Notre Dame, but that's not a great offense. And Notre Dame didn't have to run a lot of plays because they had a whole bunch of short fields. So that's maybe not the, you know, it's something you really want to hang your hat on if you're Alex Grinch. and. To, to be honest, yesterday when he spoke, he wasn't really uh, taking a victory lap or anything for not giving up that many yards to, to Notre Dame. But I feel like better at the defensive front. Um, they're getting a lot more pressure. They're getting some tackles for loss. There's still deficiencies at linebacker. I don't understand their rotation. It seems like Eric Gentry, the AFU transfer, and Mason Cobb should be the starters. And neither of those guys even started last week. So it's it's hard to tell why they're putting guys in when they are um you know that the tackling has still been an issue though they tackled really well against Notre Dame and you know the secondary just it's been kind of up and down for them too so they've had a bunch of pieces I think they're more talented than we saw them last year but the the results are still sort of like kind of hit and miss if they can get a few stops which they couldn't do last year John when Utah had the ball late in the game or Tulane had the ball there was no way those teams were going to be stopped they can't allow that to happen so if they, I, I, think they can get more stops this year than last year. That's the big thing. But they're, not, they're not like a, you know, uh, whatever, like NFL kind of defense. But I think they could be good enough if the offense is still good that they could, they could win the conference. But they just have to be better than they were last year. And right now, it's kind of been hit or miss if they've been that.
1: Yeah, the next, uh, really, the next four weeks. It's Utah. It's a road game at Cal. It's Washington at home. It's at Oregon. Uh, a lot of people up here, Ryan, talking about USC and Oregon and looking forward to that. And I think if they play that game right now, Oregon scores a million points. But uh, I still think these are always going to be great games and and uh, always really compelling. And I think, you know, Caleb Williams, anytime he's in a game, you know, I, I had a hard time picking against USC last week because I just thought he would outscore Notre Dame, and he didn't.
5: Yeah, he's the one that gives you – the chance no matter what and uh if if you would not be shocked if he just went bananas in the game you're like oh my god that was caleb williams he had no time he ran for a touchdown or he found somebody open downfield he's just that kind of player and i think it was sort of a shock to the system uh you know looking at what how bad caleb williams was in that game against notre dame i think he pressed a lot i think he felt like there's no way we're going to win this unless i do it on my own and that just sort of backfired on him but he's been that special of a player, and he he just needed some help around him. And if, you know, if Lincoln Riley's right, and they are going to be a little bit better on the defensive side of the ball, they'd have to get a few stops up in Austin. They'd have to get some stops against that uh, amazing offense with Michael Penix and, uh, and and Washington. And if they can do that, and and Caleb Williams can stay, you know, at his amazing level, then they they have a decent shot. But that's a lot. It's a lot to ask of a college player. And I think last week. Everything just sort of kind of came together. It it was too much on one guy. So I'm really curious to see how he sort of bounces back because he's never had a game like that that we've seen. So does he come back and play way better Um, in this one? I kind of think he will play well. So if he does, I think it will make it a really good game with USC. Yeah,
1: tell me if I'm crazy. It feels like it's a very pivotal game for USC. If USC loses this game, maybe the wheels come off. If they win this game, maybe they pull it together. Then they've got Cal... They get it together. They get a chance to regroup in front of that gauntlet that is, you know, Oregon, Washington, UCLA. Am I reading that
5: right? I think two separate things. You could still be crazy and think that. But, yes, I, I think you're kind of crazy, John. <laughs> but <laughs> I would say you're right in your assessment. Like, shouldn't this be, you know, a must-win game for a head coach that's 17-4 and four, that took over a 4-8 program that's been in the – like, it shouldn't be. But it does feel like that It because they, they put so much into this season, John, and they wanted to win especially this game. I mean, this was one that they showed film to, like, the freshmen that didn't know what this was like, or the transfers. Hey, here's, this is what happened last year. We have to, you know, this needs to be fixed. They put a lot into this one, so can you bounce back from, you know, the biggest beatdown we've seen uh, you know, at Notre Dame and and come through and play a good game? They're going to have to. You know, in the grand scheme of things, not like must-must-win, but if you want to be in the go in the direction that this team has talked about going and championship aspirations and all that, especially going into the Big Ten next year, I think you got to win this game. Uh, it's at home. Utah's one dimensional on offense right now. There's really no excuse not to win this one. And they're a seven point favorite, even though they're ranked like four four places lower than Utah. The eight people.
1: There it is, Ryan Abraham, USCfootball.com. Ryan, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you, man.
5: My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me.
1: Always good. Always honest. Tells it how it is. Reports well on that team. You want to know what's going on with USC? Follow Ryan Abraham on Twitter. I think it's a. It's just such a pivotal game. It's. It's. I don't even think it's like about USC. Like I, I hate to say this because it flies in the face of my mentality, but it kind of feels like it's about Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams, maybe as much as anything. That if they lose to Utah. For a third straight time, look out. Do the wheels come off at USC? And what will USC be, what, in three, four weeks as they play Washington and Oregon back-to-back? Washington and Oregon might score a combined 110, 120 points on that USC defense. It could be really ugly. Leave it here. Our big splash is next. I don't know if you're seeing news reports about... Damien Lillard's marital life, filing for divorce, custody, all that stuff. Am I the only one that just is like, that's their business? I I shouldn't be reading about this. I'm not writing about it, that's for sure. And I'm only talking about it because I'm seeing other media outlets report on it like TMZ would report on it. Like, that's their business. Like, Stephen, am I the only one that's like, I don't really want to know that stuff.
4: No, I'm with you. I, I don't really care about that stuff. I I a lot of this you know, the extra marital affairs or just marital affairs or any type of that stuff off the court, I, I really don't care about because it doesn't necessarily affect on the court and it is their business. Like, they can do what they want to do. They're they grown-ups. Like, I, I can't tell them what to do. Just like, you know, I can tell my kids what to do, but I can't tell my wife what to do. So, you know what, it, it is what it is, and it's their life. So, yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't care. I feel like we shouldn't know these details, but that's just kind of the world we live in in the celebrity life, I guess.
1: And I, I get it that there's interest in it because anytime it's a celebrity person, people are like, ooh, what's going on in their household? But, like, when I saw that he had filed for divorce or they're divorcing – I was not surprised. I would heard it months and months and months ago that, that they were estranged and felt bad for their kids. And now we're reading all these reports about, you know, this is what she said was happening and she was keeping up his image, his public image and all that. And I was like, I don't want to know this stuff. And, and so if you're looking for that kind of uh, material or content, at johnconzano.com, or really to any any depth or extent on this show, you're not going to find it from me. I, I'm I, just
4: I'm not interested. I will say this though, John. I do think it is important to take this and learn from it and say, you know what, it, we look at these athletes as heroes and role models. A lot of them you shouldn't. And it, it, there's a lot of stuff that people don't know about that I'm sure you hear about. I've, I hear about things. I hear about people. And we shouldn't look them up as as their heroes. Like we can love them as a basketball player or a football player or a baseball player, but like they're not necessarily role models. This is the whole Charles Barkley thing back in the day. So I, I think that's the one lesson maybe we can learn is like you know what if that's true if that's stuff that you know Dame's wife is saying you can't look at Dame as like this you know holy family man. But at the same time, you know what he's an awesome basketball player and I've loved him as a Portland Trailblazer. So you know it's it's one of those things where I care about him on the court. Yeah,
1: I I just I've never thought of any of those guys. As perfect or any different. In fact, I think it's really difficult for NBA players in particular to have normal lives, meaning they are generally identified at age 12, 13, 14 as basketball prodigies. They are they get a different upbringing, a different experience. People falling all over themselves because of their talent and telling them how great they are all the time and laughing at their jokes when they're not that funny and making a big deal when they do something like opening a door for a stranger and stuff that you and I and regular folks do all the time, you know, and I always laugh at it. Oh, Martell Webster pulled over in the snow and he helped a lady change her tire. This isn't that awesome. And I'm like, yeah, but I would expect, like, you know, a 25-year-old Person who was raised by parents and sees an old lady pulled over in the snow, struggling to change her tire to take an interest in, uh, in uh, you know that person's life. like you know let's not give them a medal of honor. Let's just say hey, that was uh, yeah, that was a nice thing to do and I hope other nice people would do that too. But I always sort of shake my head at it because when you talk about professional athletes in general, you know, they, uh, they get a pretty clean path in our society. And the bar is very low. And so I, you know, and I've seen enough in the NFL locker rooms and outside the NFL locker rooms, Major League Baseball clubhouses and outside the clubhouses and certainly in the hallways at Moda Center where, you know, some guys had families waiting for them and other guys had people that were not their family members waiting for them and had reputations as being great guys in the community and whatnot. And I was there going, yeah, you don't really know. You don't really know, you know, and... And we find that out, you know, when Kobe went to Colorado, find that out, you know, all the time as you find things out about Michael Jordan. Just because you're a great athlete does not mean you're a great person. Um, I'm going to take some phone calls here. Mike in Portland has got a, is called
3: in. What's up, Mike? So, John, you know, the thing about Damian Lillard that makes it so cold-blooded is that this woman had three kids by him, and from the reports, she's carrying his baby, so she's pregnant. And then he tells her in the uh, divorce uh, proceeding or settlement that she can't carry his last name. That's cold blooded. She can't even have his last name. Now I fault the fans, the blazers. You guys gave a semi literate ball player, a hundred million dollars. That's stupid. And when you say you don't care about talking about his private life, you know, I don't buy that. Because if you can talk about the jailblazers, if you can talk about the blazers smoking blunts, you can talk about Damian Lillard being a monster. That's my take on that, man. Talk to you later.
1: I'm just not that interested in the divorce proceedings. And I don't want to know what's going on in Jada Pinkett, Smith, and Will Smith's relationship either. You know, I saw one of the best takes I saw was, uh, you know, on that show, The View. Not that I was watching The View, but I saw one of the hosts say, why do I know so much about Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith? Why do I know? Why do they want me to know? I'm not interested. Uh, Dave's in Vancouver. Go ahead, Dave.
3: Well, hey, just one thing, I'm glad Willer's gone, because I never really liked his game at all. I don't know why at Portland you always said he was this amazing guy. You know, fading away from 25 feet, hitting a shot when he's like the 50th best field goal percentage. He does shoot free throw as well. But I don't know what happened to him in his personal life. But, um, hey, it's part of the gig. You can't – I don't know why you think you can just say, hey – you can't talk about this. Yeah, no, I'm we, not saying I can't. I'm just saying I'm not.
1: I'm not interested in it. Like, it, you know, like I, I get it. Like, you can well, go door to door. Why
3: even say that? Why even say that? Why not just Be- because you know, it's out there and people are
1: reporting on it. it? What? Because pe- it's out there and every other media outlet is reporting on it. Like, like this is a news story that well, a professional I mean, athlete has
3: at a. Say, someone can look at that and say, "Yeah, I like it," or "I don't." I mean, you report stuff. I, I'm like, I'm bored with. I don't want to listen to. So I don't really get where you're coming from, John. Well, I, I get. guess
1: what? I get to say what I'm interested in and not interested in. How about that? That's yeah. where I'm coming from. I'm not interested in that call anymore. How about that? <laughs> no, I like that Dave called. I don't mind being challenged. And I like that Dave challenged me. But my point was, I'm coming out of the commercial break, and you know what I'm doing in the commercial break? I'm going, hey, anything happening right now? And I'm seeing a bunch of media outlets that are all posting about Lillard's marital issue and there was a divorce and he's out of town and, like, people, it's salacious stuff and I get it, but, you know, there are some kids involved here that aren't making $100 million as an NBA player who are, you know, it's kind of sad to me that their family's breaking up. I don't know. I'm just not that interested in it. And I guess me saying I'm not that interested in it becomes a topic. I don't know. I don't know. Coming up, we're going to get a visit from Dave Bartu. I am very interested in what Dave Bartu has to say about the college football playoff committee and the formula that he says is absolutely part of the equation in picking the best four teams in America. We are less than two weeks away from the first set of rankings being released publicly. Dave Bartu knows the secret sauce. He's going to share it next. I like mixing it up with callers. I don't expect everybody to agree with me. Steven, you saw, I let the caller speak his mind, didn't I?
4: Yeah, no, I, I thought you were pretty fair with that. You let him get his uh, get his side out, and he said, you know what, I don't like everything you talk about, John. And then you said, you know what, I don't want to talk to you right now. So, uh, <laughs> you know, got him on that. But you, you let him get his side out. You let him talk. It was good. I don't, like, I don't like callers to, uh,
1: I don't want callers to feel like, I treated them unfairly, but I think, you know, it's my show ultimately, and I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about, and you know what, I don't care if you don't like everything that I'm saying, and in fact, if you tell me you love everything I'm saying and you agree with me all the time, I'm going to call you a liar, there's no way, nobody's that crazy, nobody, and how boring would that be? Our next guest, the ever-disagreeable Dave Bartu. College football matrix. He runs Matrix Analytics. I wrote about him today at johnconzano.com. That's the consulting firm that works with a number of college conferences and schools. As a hobby, Dave Bartu and his team, they like to crunch numbers on the playoff front. College football playoff front. They are self-described data nerds. Bartu not on the selection committee for the playoff. He has not spoken with the thirteen members of the panel, but uh, he does appear to read their minds. And he's joining us now to talk about college football. How are you, my friend?
6: Oh, dude, I am. I, I'm doing good. Just putting my can of spray paint down here on the overpass on 84 to to jump on your show. And you know, I I don't I, I don't know about the whole uh, agree with everything you say because every time I come to your golf tournament, you agree with. Everything your wife says every mm,
1: single time. <laughs> I'm not dumb. I'm not. I'm no dummy. Part two causing problems oh, right man.
7: now. Gonna oh mix man! Oh man!
3: I
6: love you, man. I love being on. <laughs> let's let's talk some nerd right. stuff. Let's nerd out on these things.
1: Okay, I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask you some simple questions, and then I'm gonna throw a bunch of questions at you. And then I want our listeners, if a question occurs to you as a listener, you can call in. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five, and ask Dave Bartu yourself because people are going to have questions after, and I hate that they ask me after, and I go, damn it, I uh, wish I would have asked you. So let's just start here. You yeah. say there, there's a formula, and it's very easy to predict what the College Football Playoff Selection Committee will do. Explain that.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, so, so when when the playoffs, when it was first announced, when Bill Hancock, and I can't remember, was it the summer of, summer of 2012, 2013, And he came out and said, we're having a playoff. And everybody loved it, right? And he talked for about an hour about what it meant to be ranked in the playoffs. And inside his discussion, the initial discussion, he told everybody, while nobody was paying attention, everybody was just ecstatic about 14 playoffs, he said, here's how the committee is going to rank teams. And it was very clear that being on the committee, you are going to be part of a simple formula to rank teams. And so a lot of people fall prey to the idea that, oh, the committee thinks how they wanna think and it's different every year. It's not. And that that's not how big business works. And that's, there's no way these people can meet for three hours once a week and dissect 30 teams um, without having some sort of formula. And in that initial discussion, He broke down how the committee was supposed to rank teams, what was important. And what we got out of it was there are seven things. There are only seven variables that are important to ranking each and every team, each and every week, each and every year. And uh, it took us a couple of weeks on the first rankings to figure out how they weigh those, what's important, okay? And uh, since then, in the last nine years, uh, every top 25 that comes out, we, we do a preview of how they are going to rank these teams. Um, on average, we miss by one spot per top 25 team each week, okay, each week. And the final top seven, in order, we have never missed, using the same formula. So, uh, so folks that say, oh, brand's important, and what you did last year, and what conference, Bull crap. None of that means anything. If you give me those seven variables for every team in college football with no names, just team A, team B, team D, team E, I would nail the top seven every single year for the last nine years in order. It's that predictable. I think what's tough for fans is it drives them nuts to even think it's, is it that really that simple? Yes, it is. And if, if you listen to, if people read your article, Uh, and and listen to this segment, they'll be able to pretty much predict exactly what the committee is going to do October 31st. And every week that it goes forward, you get better at it because we get more games to break teams up.
1: You had a nice rant about the eye test. What do you say to people (sighs) when they go, well, do they pass the eye test?
6: What a bunch of horse crap. I mean, seriously, the eye test, it, it drives me nuts. I don't know who started it. Whoever started the whole, it was probably one of the chairmen, oh, this they, they, they got to pass the eye test. What kind of crap is that, right? I mean, look at the people on the committee. They're athletic directors. They are people that, 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 I mean, yeah, you have a Barry Alvarez, okay? If Barry Alvarez says, hey, Dave, I watched Wisconsin and Oregon play, and here's my eye test, okay? I'll listen to Barry Alvarez after he watches two hours of film. Am I going to listen to Gary Barda, the AD at Iowa, go, oh, I didn't pass my test? No. I'd like me listening to you talk about the eye test or me talking about the eye test. It's ridiculous to think that these people have the expertise to break down a team uh, or all the teams in, in three days. And that's the other thing is not only do they not have the ability to do it, and even if they did, you're talking two hours per team. you got to look at 30 teams. 30 times two is 60 hours. That's, that's basically watching X's and O's every second from Saturday evening to Tuesday afternoon when they vote. That's not realistic either. So when, whenever they, they throw out the eye test, I scream BS. I think it's a whole bunch of crap, and I think it just distracts from the simplicity of the ranking system.
1: Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. I wrote about him today at johnkanzano.com. All right, you say that the criteria, seven variables involved are championship wins, quality mm-hmm. wins, which means you have to be above 500, 7-5, five, top 25 wins, margin of victory, uh, margin of loss,
4: mm-hmm. uh,
1: bad losses, losing to a sub-500 bad. team, and strength right. of schedule, okay? Based yep. on that criteria. USC's loss to Notre Dame. Are they out?
6: Um, pretty darn close, man. Pretty darn close. Um, look, Georgia got in in 2017 with a 23-point a loss. Um, and it, it just so happened that I believe in 2017 they had a, a non-conference top 25 win that, that kind of offset that. Okay, And, and that's really what... Uh, when you when you find teams that kind of do something extraordinary, that people go, oh, why did that happen? Usually, it is because a non-conference top 25 win got snuck in there. So, like when like when Ohio State snuck in over a two-loss Penn State, a lot of people don't remember they beat Oklahoma, which finished in the top 25. So there's a top 25 win and a quality win, and they beat a nine and three. PULSA, which was another quality win. And so Georgia had the same thing. But back to that USC, USC is right on the edge of not making it. Um, Now, if you look at their non-conference schedule, Notre Dame was the the top 25 game on their non-conference schedule they needed to win. They didn't get it. Now, I'm looking at the numbers. I actually think USC is going to fall apart, John. They may not even finish in the top 25. Their focus over the last two weeks has absolutely imploded. Wouldn't even surprise me to see Lincoln Riley jump to the NFL because the focus rate on that team in the last two weeks has fallen apart. So, but, but USC, look, they are on the edge. I think you and I would agree they're at best the fourth best team in the Pac-12 right now behind Oregon, Oregon State, and Washington. Um and you know with that with that big loss they're just one more loss away and, and they finished with Washington, Oregon,
1: um, UCLA Utah and they UCLA got Utah this week yeah they're they're in trouble yeah they're in trouble yeah they might go zero
6: and four they might they might finish they might r- out zero and four Lincoln jumps Caleb jumps boom everybody else in the West Coast is happy
1: <laughs> all right let me let me ask you about Oregon's path to the playoff if Oregon yeah. wins when Oregon wins out gets to the to the conference championship game, beats Washington, avenges that loss, or beats whoever is there, Oregon in yeah. with one loss? Yeah,
6: they are. They, they are as long as they continue to do what they do because the margin of victory is excellent. They're, they have one loss. It was, a, it was a good loss. I mean, if you're going to lose, you don't want to lose to, to Stanford. You lost to Washington on the road by three, so the margin of loss is low. Uh, it's a quality loss. Um, and then you look at all of the other, see, because the Pac-12 did so good in non-conference, there's a lot more quality wins in the Pac-12 this year than normal. And so anybody listening, what you've got to look at is the body of the schedule. And one of the really important things is non-conference games. And the Pac-12 basically, correct me if I'm wrong, almost swept non-conference play. So that put them in the position where there's a lot of quality wins out there for Oregon, so if you're an Oregon fan, obviously you want Washington to keep winning, right? Because it doesn't matter if Washington wins out if you meet him in the Pac-12 title game. Um, you know, you want Oregon State to keep winning. Everybody you play, you want them to keep winning games. Heck, if you're if you're a Duck fan, you're rooting for Texas Tech big time to get to seven and five. All of these things add up. Those quality wins and top twenty-five wins. And let me remind everybody, it's a top twenty-five win based on the previous week's rankings. So. If they beat a, you know, if Texas Tech becomes top 25 by the end of the season, they're going to get credit for a top 25 win. If they beat, uh, you know, if, if they beat Oregon State and Oregon State falls out of the top 25. Colorado. That's like not Colorado. Going to be a top yeah. yeah, Colorado. Like Colorado, right? Yeah. You know, Colorado and their 89th ranked defense, right? Um, and so, yeah, so that's not going to be a top 25 win for them. But with Oregon. Um, actually Oregon and Washington and Oregon State I would say are the really the three that control their destiny in terms of winning out any one of those three winning the pac-12 title I believe right now when you look at the schedule they are going to be in
1: right now today if the college football playoff committee released rankings let's just say yesterday Oregon yeah. Oregon and Oregon State who's ranked higher uh, Oregon State easily
6: um, Oregon State has two top 25 wins. They have two quality wins. Uh, Oregon only has one quality win. They got no top 25 wins. I know people be like, well, look where they're going to be in the future, but the playoff committee is only about resume through right now, okay? And Oregon actually closely mimics Georgia. Georgia only has one quality win. They got no top 25 wins. Georgia's strength of schedule uh, is in the bottom 30. So I think Oregon right now, if it comes out, like I said, all they got to do is win out there in the top four. But I think if it comes out there somewhere, we have a modeled at 13, which probably puts them 12, 13, 14 in the playoff committee if it
1: came out today. Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. Washington is interesting. You say that, you know, if the playoff rankings were released today, you'd have Oklahoma, Ohio State, Washington. Florida State, Mm -hmm. one through four, if they came out today. But Washington has to continue to win, don't they? Because if they end up in a position, they're not going to be a great candidate for, like, a second team from the Pac-12 getting in, given their non-conference schedule.
6: I don't don't think the Pac-12 can have a second team. Um, And it goes back to what I said before, is the second team is usually a team that obviously loses in a title game. Um but has a quality, a top 25 non-conference win, okay? So, um, like in Ohio State, I think of, you know, now Ohio State and Michigan, Ohio State and Penn State, because they have divisions, they can't meet in the title game. Um, So a one-loss Ohio State, let's say they lose in the title game to Iowa, okay? That means they're going to have wins over Michigan, Penn State, but the kicker is they beat Notre Dame at Notre Dame, so that's a top 25 win, okay, Uh, Florida State has a win over currently top 25 LSU, now LSU may fall out, so uh, to me, Washington cannot afford to lose the next game, that's why I say what happened in Seattle on Saturday, if both teams went out, Washington and Oregon went out, that game's a nothing burger, it doesn't matter, it will be the, 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 the conference champ that goes to the playoff, and the other team going home, no matter what the record is,
1: Dave, you know Washington doesn't want to hear that. But you mm-hmm. you mentioned how they are at the mercy of Boise State when it comes to their final ranking. Why is that? Why is Boise State important to Washington?
6: <laughs> uh, in the non-conferences, is, is in particular, and, and Boise State is great to schedule because Boise State's the number one recruiter. In their conference, and Boise State has such a recruiting advantage, that's a team that should be finishing 10-3 and 3 and in the top 25. And right now, they may not even be a quality win. You know, that loss to Colorado State, I can't remember where Boise is right now, um, but they're not playing good football. Three and four. There's a lot of team Yeah, three, they're three, three, and, four. three and four. Okay? Yeah. I mean, holy crap. You know, you, if you're Washington, you schedule Boise State because it's a decent game. People are interested in it. But you need Boise State to give you a quality win. If they don't give you a quality win, that game is useless. And, and for everybody listening, you have to understand that a quality win is any team that finishes above 500. So you need Boise now to go 4-1 and one in the rest of their games to get a quality win. Otherwise, that game is a 0 it doesn't matter. Uh, so, so you know, when you're looking at whether it's Washington or anybody, you have to look at the whole schedule and who they've played. So, whether you're a Duck fan, a Beaver fan, a Husky fan, you are. Once you beat somebody, your favorite team is who you're rooting for and everybody you beat. You know, So for Oregon, you're screaming for Texas Tech. For Oregon State, you want UCLA winning out. You want Utah winning out. Washington, Boise is really critical to not only seeding, but getting into the playoffs.
1: Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. He's all over this stuff. I'm going to take some phone calls because people have questions for you, Bartu. You knew it would happen. All right, let's go to uh, let's go to Mark in Portland first. Mark, you're on with Dave Bar Go ahead.
7: Hey, I first want to say I just can't wait till next year where we have a playoff where all the division conference champions get in. But if if Washington wins out and Oregon wins out, and Washington gained 600 yards to Oregon's 450, and their, their coach makes three ridiculous fourth-down moves, and they end up losing that game
4: at the end. It, TCU got in last year. Is there an avenue for Oregon and Washington to both get in?
6: I, I think there's always an avenue, Mark, for, for two teams to get in. I think it's going to be very difficult, like I said, because neither has a, there's nothing quality in their non-conference schedule. Now, they do have the advantage of having a lot of wins uh, in terms of all the teams they're playing in conference. And, and the other thing that you've got to consider is there's other teams that may fall apart. You know, the SEC is, is you know, it has, their, has their worst numbers on in, in the last century. Uh, the SEC may not even get a team into the playoffs, even if they go 12-1 and one because of everybody else that's out there. So I'd like to say there is a possible path. But it is very unlikely because you got so many other teams out there doing well. You don't have a lot of quality non-conference um, results for Oregon and Washington on the backside. Uh, so it, it, I would say it would take a small miracle of things falling into place for that to happen. But I would like to not say it's impossible, but I'd say it's very unlikely that happens.
1: Yeah, I, I think, uh, Kevin, like you wanted – two undefeated teams playing in that conference championship game to have, you know, a path for two teams to get in and uh unfortunately it looks like uh it'll be Washington or bust or Oregon or bust or maybe Oregon State or bust or somebody else but Roy's in mm-hmm. Portland Roy Roy you're on with Dave Bartu go ahead
3: Hey how you doing John and Dave Good um I don't understand how if say Oregon, you know, wins all their games and they meet Washington wins their games. they need to get in the Pac-12 championship and Oregon Beach, Washington. I don't see either one of them going to the playoffs. I mean, I, I don't understand. Like, you got North Carolina undefeated, and Florida State is undefeated. So, what if Florida uh, Florida State loses in the ACC championship game? Do they live with one loss? Do they do they, they uh, stay out? I mean, I I don't know. I don't see I I don't see, a, a, I don't see a pack, unless a Pac-12 team goes undefeated. I don't see them in the playoffs. I don't see them getting in over an SEC team. I don't see them getting in over a one-loss Ohio State or Michigan. I, 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 or a one-loss Georgia. I, I don't see that. So, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't have all the stats that you do, but can you tell me why I'm wrong? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Help, help well, Roy no, out,
6: David. Yeah, yeah it's, Roy, it's, it's really not so much the stats. It is What, it, what it's going to come down to is, The the simplest formula for everybody, and none of us can predict what exactly is going to happen because we still have half a season to play. But if you add up, just just give one point for a championship win, one point for a top 25 win, and give all the teams one point for a quality win. If you add all of that up, you're going to get your top four. The top four almost every year lead the country in those three little things. That's it. So you know when you're looking at when I'm looking at Oregon and Washington, I feel that they have a strong opportunity if the top 25 teams keep winning out. Now normally at this point in the season, the Pac-12 doesn't have this many top 25 teams. Why? Because they don't do as well in the in non-conference, and and they kind of cannibalize each other. So I I think it's unique this year that the Pac-12 has a lot of top 25 teams. You look at the SEC. You know their performance isn't there. I think they're going to cannibalize themselves as well. The ACC, you got Duke, you got Florida State, you got North Carolina. There's not a lot of top 25 wins in there because non-conference-wise, the ACC didn't do that well. So I'm not saying Washington wins out or Oregon wins out, uh, or either one has one loss and, and and wins the title and they get a higher seed. I just feel that they're on pace because of the teams left on their schedule versus everybody else uh, that they would be there both either
1: one at 12 and one with the pac 12 championship craig is in westland he's got a question craig you're on with dave bartu
5: well i don't know
7: if it's exactly a question but um my thought is that usc's win over what we now see as a very overrated colorado team might actually look worse for them then they're lost to Notre
5: Dame.
6: Hmm. It, it, that, that's possible, but I, I don't think the committee is even going to care about that. I don't believe they go that far in depth. The chairman may talk about it, the media may talk about it, but I think when the committee looks at something like that, they're going to go, okay, uh, USC beat Colorado. Uh, did if, if Colorado finishes seven and five or better, that's one point. That's a quality win. If Colorado finishes six and six or worse, it's a nothing burger. That game doesn't mean anything. And then with the Notre Dame, not only did you lose that game, basically minus one point, you got blown out, um, albeit on the road. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people give. I think I think people give the committee, especially the media, like John. <laughs> yes, go on. Right, right. I mean, people give the committee too much credit. They, these, these people are making, you know, these people are making $25,000 a week at their jobs. They're not going to the stupid committee meetings for 48 hours and hashing this stuff out. They want it done when they show up. So I don't think they get into the weeds and get into the minutia that far. I think when you look at USC, they lost to Notre Dame. Um, and you look at Colorado, you know, if you're a USC fan, if Colorado doesn't finish 7-5 or better, you might as well have beaten UC Davis. That's a worthless game for him on the schedule from a resume standpoint.
1: Yeah, and I keep thinking about that. You know, if, if you're Oregon, you, you definitely want everybody that you're playing to continue to win, and including uh-huh. especially Texas Tech in the non-conference. But, uh, you know, you mentioned teams that control their own destiny. Oregon State, one loss Oregon State. You've got, you know, one loss Oregon, certainly undefeated Washington. It, is, that, is that where you draw the line? It's those teams controlling their destiny, or do you go even further and say, hey, Utah still has one loss, and, and they're still in play as well?
6: I, I guess you could, but I, I think there's two tiers, John. I, I think you have your tier one contenders, Oregon, Oregon State, Washington. Uh, they got the W's, they got the offense, they got good defense, they got good margin of victory. Uh, USC, I think they're tier two. They, got, they, they have a blowout loss. Uh, their defense is unimpressive. Their margin of victory has shrunk significantly over the last two weeks, barely getting by Arizona and getting thumped in South Bend. Utah, same thing. Um, yeah, they're one loss, but their margin of victory is small. I don't believe. Do they have a top twenty-five? Who, who have they beat that's currently that could end up being in the top
1: twenty-five? So yeah, they got Florida, uh, you know. Baylor. Yeah, you're right. It's just it's kind right. of right. I mean, they got they got, they got they
6: got yeah. nothing. Right? They got nothing. They're the one top twenty-five team that they played. They got smoked in Corvallis. Well, they didn't get smoked, but they got beat. And oh, you know, so um, you know, you could say Utah's still in it, but I think they're a I think they're a tier two kind of in it versus the top three in the Pac-12 right now.
1: All right, so a nightmare scenario for the Pac-12 is, A, either USC somehow getting to the conference championship game and winning and having that Notre Dame loss hanging overhead, or multiple losses, not a one-loss conference champion. And In a, in a case where your conference champion has two losses, you don't see that team as a playoff team.
6: No, yeah, I think they're toast. I really do because they don't have that big non-conference win to to erase the problems, right? You know, I mean it, it was it's like uh, it was like Georgia and Oregon last year, you know. Right. It's over. Uh, if let yeah if, if let yeah, let's, let's say Georgia Oregon beats a Georgia last year and goes 11 and two, or Washington you know beat Notre Dame this year and Notre Dame finishes in the top 25, you have a non a huge non-conference win that can erase problems. But Oregon 11-2, Oregon State 11-2, and Washington 11-2, and um, now you're depending on other teams failing to get in. So I, I would bet against the scenario that 11-2 and conference champion gets the Pac-12 into the four-game playoff this year.
1: Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. Love having you on. We'll get you back on, Dave, when that first set of rankings comes out in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. Anytime, anywhere, John. You know I'm always here for you. Alright, there he is, Dave Bar two. Good stuff. Rich. Steven, is that Rich?
4: Love it, man. Rich. Love that stuff. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. I I find I it, hear it I find it so interesting, yeah. I find it interesting that it's he makes it seem like it's so easy to come up with the formula and it probably he makes a lot of sense because you can't watch that much film if you are in that position. So there has to be some type of formula, so you know I've been tracking bar two for years and he's always pretty right on track with all these uh for the playoff projections I think you
1: have to take bar two in doses and I mean that with all due respect to bar two because you can't have him on every day talking about analytics and data your head'll just spin it's like you know it's like trying to fill out your tax form or, or uh, sitting in line at the DMV like you you, you you gotta have it's a time and place for Dave bar two but he's rich it when you get him at a moment where, hey, the rankings are coming out in two weeks from yesterday, ESPN will release that first set of rankings, there will not be any surprises in Bartu's household. Because he knows right now, he says Oregon State would be nine in the rankings, and he thinks that uh, or excuse me, Oregon would be 13 if the rankings came out today, meaning that the Ducks have one quality win and no top 25 wins. Oregon State has two top 25 wins plus multiple quality wins. Um, You know, one thing that could help Oregon State is Washington State to get its act together. Will the Cougars get their act together? That and more in Punch It! Audio coming up. I love that interview with Bartu. If you missed it, you want to share it, you want to re-digest it, you can grab a podcast of this show wherever you get a podcast. Utah. Utah does have a win over UCLA. Top who, who are hanging on right now in the top twenty-five. That would that would qualify as a win. But um, what about if Utah ran the table from here on out? I guess Utah would have wins over Oregon and Washington. So I guess a one-loss Utah. If they got to the conference championship game, they'd play Oregon-Washington and then whoever they played at the conference championship game. Maybe the best case for them would be a rematch with Oregon State. You you could make a case for Utah at that point.
4: Really good stuff.
1: How
8: about the, the comment, way, yeah, the, yeah,
4: the three, three teams in the Pac-12 to control their destiny? As you've been talking about all year, the Northwest teams, besides Washington State, Washington, Oregon, yeah. Oregon State, they control their destiny to get the college football playoffs still.
1: Yeah, and I think I don't want to count Utah out because I, I, I would challenge Bartu on that now that I've looked at Utah's schedule because they've got a top 25 win, same as Oregon. They've got or more than Oregon because Oregon doesn't have one. And then they have opportunities coming up where they will play Oregon, they will play Washington. Unfortunately, they've got Arizona, Colorado, Arizona State. Maybe if Arizona can continue to win, they could be a top 25 team by
4: the end of the year. But isn't it, isn't it the offense and the margin of victory? Like they've had a lot of close games.
1: Yeah, it is. But their only loss, if you go back, is you know to Oregon State. If they got another crack at Oregon State, the same way that Oregon and Washington played, and you know if Oregon beats Washington in the conference championship game and avenges that loss, that first one becomes a nothing burger. I don't know. Fourteen point loss on the road, Oregon State earlier in the season, no cam rising. Uh, I could see the committee making a case for Utah as well. So keep an eye on those teams as contenders coming down the stretch. By the way, speaking of guests on uh, on podcasts, guests and podcasts, um, John Wilner and I have Chip Kelly lined up for a podcast this week. So on the Konzano and Wilner podcast, Chip Kelly going to join. By the way, Chip Kelly wants to do the interview at 8.30 in the morning. What's going on with Chip Kelly at 8 o'clock in the morning? I want to talk to Chip Kelly at 8.30 in the morning. Do you? Come on. No, 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 I don't. Sometimes he's practicing. <laughs> He must be practicing at six o'clock in the morning. They morning they're a morning riser team. It's probably all about biorhythms and all that, but I don't know if I'm gonna have my good stuff at eight thirty. I know Chip will be on. I'm gonna try. I might have to start getting my body clock adjusted right now to get that going. All right, let's uh let's uh Play some punch it audio. We got the best sound from all around. Or should I push it into the next segment? What do you think? We're running a little bit late. Yeah, we're running a little late here. I don't wanna I don't wanna overdo it and then have the segment be like half baked. So we'll we'll play punch it audio in the next segment coming up. But before I get to that, I wanna talk about the one thing that came up yesterday on the show. Jake Dickert telling us on this show that he's not looking for other jobs listen to this washington state coach because the big rumor is dickert talked to michigan state michigan state talked to dickert or they talked to his agent this is what is causing washington state to look so distracted on the field here's dick have you had contact with other schools during the bye week did you meet with michigan state did you talk with michigan state did you talk with any other school is any of that going on
9: I have not talked to a single person, not just in the bi-week, but any week, uh, John. And, you know, I love being here, and I don't need to defend my position here at Washington State. This is the job that I'm here to do and to move our program forward and into the future. So we're excited about that, uh, and that's been our only focus really the whole time.
1: It's not just Michigan State. You say you didn't talk to any schools over the bye week That's not part of the distraction. That's not happening right now.
9: Yeah, I haven't talked to any schools ever, John. So I'm I'm excited okay. about this opportunity this week, uh, against a really good Oregon team. All
1: right, there's Jake Dickert. Uh, my friend Jason Puckett, K J R in Seattle, said basically college football coaches are paid liars. And he means it with all due respect. Like, you know, he says they're they they have to be. They have to be paid liars. That's what
4: they do. Um do you agree with that? Are they paid? Are coaches paid liars? Yeah, because I think, I mean, worst case scenario, if Jake Dickard is looking for jobs and he doesn't get it, he has to be able to go back and look at his his team and say, "No, I was never talking to anybody about it." Because if if it's known and he comes out and Jake Dickard says, "Yeah, I was looking at these jobs," he loses players' trust instantly. Well, most, a lot of them, I would imagine. So he has to save face in front of his own team, just in case, worst-case scenario, he goes back. And then it also just a bad look of saying, you know what, I quit on this team early in the season. Uh, you know, what I, What does that say about me as a person, as a coach? So, yeah, I, I think they have to, and it doesn't really bother me, but at the same time, like, it just makes it so I don't think any of these coaches are ever telling the truth about pretty much anything. So, yeah, I mean, I think they are paid liars. They have, they have to be, John. They, they would lose trust so quickly – if they were 100% truthful in what they were doing.
1: Now, I people criticized me yesterday, and they said, well, you didn't ask him if his agent had talked to other people. And so I reached back out to Dickert, and I said, uh, you know, if you want to shoot that down, I'm happy to report it. He didn't answer that. And I don't think it's because, you know, I don't want to say it's because he doesn't have a good answer for it. He might just be sick and tired of being asked about it. Uh, I also asked Washington State if Michigan State or any other school had asked for permission to talk to Dickert, and Washington State had no answer for that either. I, I think they don't want to talk about it. I think they – I'm not sure if that's the distraction or not, but it's become a distraction in my life. Let's leave it here. you got Punched Audio coming up. I appreciate everybody who listens to this radio show. I appreciate everybody who reads me at johnconzano.com. That's where I'm writing now exclusively if you want to read my writing. Get a paid subscription, get a free subscription, just go to johnconsano.com. Uh, really, really humbled by the uh, the email responses I get every day and the hundreds and hundreds of comments in the comment section. The comment section is great. Like I used to hate the comment section at the newspaper. It was a cesspool. Just a like just a horrible place to exist, to be. And the comment section uh at johnconsano.com is like this really cool discourse. Duck fans and Husky fans uh, debating today and debating in a way that isn't like, you know, a bunch of people just throwing kerosene at each other. It's really, really, really um, redeeming to read the discussion that's going on back and forth. People commenting today about Portland State, Oregon State, Washington, and other things. If you want to check that out, jump in there. You'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, Let's get to Punch and Audio. Got great stuff today. We interrupt
7: this podcast with a special announcement from the Bald-Face Truth headquarters. Hey, we're all about
4: truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top
8: audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound.
0: Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
1: Well, let's start with the Chargers superfan that was on the Pat McAfee show. Is she a fake? Pat
4: McAfee trying to get to the bottom of it. Punch it. Have you ever questioned it? Like, maybe this isn't the right team to spend all my energy cheering for because inevitably in the end there's a chance the Chargers are going to charge her.
6: There's always a chance, right? I mean, before I die, we're going to get there, we're going to win it, and it's going to happen. I mean, I have my updates, I have my down days. I just feel bad for my kids going to school today and being like, was that your mom? <laughs> <laughs> because at the end of the day, like... <laughs>
8: Even when it's my down day, my husband still believes in me, my kids still love me, so my Chargers, hey, you know, yes, they got me sad at the end,
6: but, hey, we're going to ride up again, so it's all good. You have to have faith. If not, what's the point of being a fan?
1: Marianne Doe was also featured in a photo on social media wearing what appeared to be a Vikings jersey, the Internet doing what the Internet does lot of speculation that she was a paid actor turns out she's not that her team appar- or her son apparently plays for the Vikings I don't know I don't care we know too much about Marianne Doe I don't wanna know that much about her Adam Silver NBA Commissioner talking about the NBA's in season tournament
10: punch it could we take games that are already part of the regular season, redesignate a set of games as in-season tournament games, mm-hmm. and then c- create a separate competition around them. In, in our case, what we ultimately came up with was a tournament that culminates in Las Vegas with, in essence, a, a, a Final Four-type format. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and not, back to this issue about you know, player resting, we had a bunch of different concepts, but we ultimately decided. I'm really, with the exception of the very last game of the in-season tournament, that's the only additional game, an 83rd game for those two teams. Okay. But for the other players, we recognize they're already playing a lot of basketball. It's a long season. It didn't make sense to then, you know, add on a whole separate tournament. But to take existing games, create some new excitement around them, you'll see the floor will be different. The guys will be wearing different uniforms. I, I think traditions aren't created overnight. I, I you know. I, I'm hearing, though, a lot of buy-in throughout the league. I think guys are getting excited about it.
1: Guys are getting excited about it because there's more money attached to it. The teams are excited about it because, hey, there's more money attached to it. And the league's TV deal, by the way, negotiations for that media rights deal underway. That's what they're doing here. They're trying to raise the value or add value to the NBA's regular season because they're trying to sell the NBA's regular season to TV partners. This isn't about fans or making it more exciting for players. It's about making it more lucrative for the owners. I don't know if the players are gonna buy in or not, but more importantly, the question I have, are viewers gonna buy in? Steven, are you gonna watch these play-in tournaments? Are you into them or is it just kind of a curiosity that you have?
4: More of a curiosity right now. Um, I'm definitely gonna give it a chance it's it's kind of like in the NFL when they moved back to extra point. I was skeptical, but now I really like it. And then when the NBA added the play-in tournament, I was a little skeptical of it. Like, really? Do we really need 10 teams you know, to be involved in the playoffs? But I like the play-in tournament now, so I'm willing to give it a chance and uh, I'm going to go in there, open-minded and hope it's uh, good. I just I'm very skeptical of it. I don't know what the motivation would be besides just money and if that really is a matter matter factor of what these guys want to do. So I'm intrigued just to see what it looks like, but I'm not super into it right now. The referee
1: in charge of Friday's Colorado-Stanford game briefly interrupted the matchup at the start of the second quarter to warn the PA announcer about playing music during play. Threatened the Buffaloes with a penalty if it continued. Guess what? Colorado did a good job of attracting penalties on its own against Stanford. It's been a problem all season long. Joel Klatt pointing it out. punching.
2: Let's just talk
6: like undisciplined play. They had 17 penalties. 17. Some of them egregious like, hey, guys, stop punching the other team after the whistle. That doesn't take any talent. None whatsoever. It doesn't take any effort. All it takes is, you know, being halfway smart. So the undisciplined play is now just not a problem in that game. It's been a problem in every game. Colorado now averages double-digit penalties per game, and they are the
1: most penalized team in the nation. So, like, that's a problem. 127 yards, 17 penalties against Stanford. I'll go further. It's not just a penalty problem. There's a there's an overall discipline issue, attitude issue, that is developed at, at Colorado. You can see it on the sideline as Stanford was coming back. The finger-pointing on the field, coaches yelling at players, players refusing to shake hands at the end of the game, the starting quarterback or whoever's running his social media promoting product at halftime. You can't do that. It's a circus right now at Colorado, and you can't have that happen. They've got to get this under control. They've got to come out of a bye week with some kind of uh, stability. Or the end of this season for Colorado threatens to just be off the rails every week, more embarrassing than the last week. I thought it was a pretty embarrassing show by Colorado. And I wasn't talking about losing a 29-point lead. They just didn't look like a team that had any kind of good culture or discipline in the loss to Stanford. It, it, and is and, this and the, that's been evident.
4: Is this? Do we blame Dion for that? Do we blame Dion for I mean, the undisciplined?
1: You have to. You have to. It's his team in the end. He can say all he wants. It's them, it's them, it's them. They don't want it as much as coaches. This is your team. These are guys that you welcomed in the portal. This is your Louis Vuitton luggage that you brought in. And it's a great story. A lot of people watching Colorado, even last week, you know, they weren't the most watched game in college football, but there was a lot of people watching them. But guess what? This week, Fox and ABC were drafting the October 28th games. And Colorado's playing at UCLA in the L.A. market. Fox has the number one pick and says, nah, we'll take Oregon-Utah. ABC says, okay, we'll take Colorado. But I found that interesting that they weren't the number one pick this week when the games were selected for October 28th. And I think that has to do with the shine coming off. Dan Patrick talking Lincoln-Riley. Listen to this. Punch it. This
2: is from Inside USC with uh, Scott Wolfe. In NFL coaching circles, the talk is that Lincoln Riley is putting out feelers about taking a job in the NFL next season. To be clear, this chatter was going around last week and has nothing to do with USC's loss to Notre Dame. The word is Riley would be open to an NFL job if he could follow Caleb Williams to the same franchise. If the Chicago Bears had the number one pick, it would probably be ideal for this theory. The other part of the theory is that an NFL team would tell Riley who to hire, especially on the defensive side, to avoid some of the pratfalls that have happened in college. If Riley is serious about wanting to coach only 10 more years, it would make sense that he would go to the NFL sooner than later.
3: Our
1: guest in Hour 1, Ryan Abraham, saying that that report, not coming from a credible outlet, still... A lot of people going with it and a lot of people whispering about it. And I'm wondering how much smoke is smoke and how much smoke is fire when it comes to Lincoln-Riley. Obviously, things not going right. And, again, we can look at this week's game. They will play Utah at home. Utah beat them twice last season and embarrassed them in the Pac-12 championship game. If USC doesn't show up to play, Utah will beat them again as a road dog in their own house. And that, to me, becomes the game potentially where the wheels start to wobble and then come off. It'll be really interesting to see, too, will Cam Rising play for Utah? Is he going to play at all this season? If he is, I would expect that he's going to suit up against USC. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Anna will be along. you got the BFT statewide. Anna's in the studio. She's here. She is locked in. Tomorrow, Anna's got to go to court. Anna is fighting a ticket. Anna got a ticket. I don't think you were speeding, Anna.
8: It's a presumptive ticket. I just want to clarify, it's a presumptive. What is pre-
1: What do you mean? Does it say that on the ticket? Yes. Presumptive? Yeah. I'm innocent until proven guilty. You are damn right, John. and you're fighting this. I am. You're going to
8: court? <laughs> I love it. Did you uh it to the man- <laughs> Do you prepare expert witnesses? Uh-huh. Yeah. Exhibits, expert witnesses, um, you know, photos of the scene. Can I tell you about... I'm available if you
4: need a character character
8: witness. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Yeah, I got your back. I know you've got my (laughs) back. I'm not going
1: to court. I I fought a ticket ticket when I was in college. I had a car that had a transmission that was terrible. Like a car, when you're at a stoplight and I would hit the gas, the entire car would shake. (laughs) And it would take a little while for it to get going. Like you couldn't get going. And I got a ticket from an officer who claimed I was going forty-five and a thirty-five. It was on one of those streets where the lights turn and if you don't if you don't go thirty-five you get stopped at the next light and the next light. Like yeah, the lights are timed. Yeah. There was no way I was going more than thirty-five. There's no way that car could go more than thirty-five <laughs> with that kind of distance. Yeah. And so, you know, the the officer showed up in court. We had a whole thing where I cross examined him. In front of this judge, this judge was nice guy, <laughs> oh, and the officer got on the stand, gave his testimony, said you know that I was speeding, and he uh, measured it by radar and all this stuff, and so then I got a chance to cross examine him, and I said uh, you know uh, when was the last time when was your radar calibrated? That's a question I asked. Him. They love that question, and he had to answer it. He you know he, you know oh we calibrated on such and such date, and then I then I started asking him questions. I said so. When you came up to my car and were uh, asking me, you know, what was said? And he says, well, I asked you, uh, do you know how fast you were going? And uh, I said, well, what did I say? And he said, "Uh, you said no. (laughs) And uh, I said, well, what did you have in your hand when you came up to the car? Because I knew what he had in his hand. And I thought it was an interesting thing to have in your hand if you were going to pull somebody over and give them a ticket. And he said, uh, uh, I had a flashlight in my hand. And I said, but on the ticket, can you read for me what you said the conditions were at the time uh, when you gave me the ticket? And he said, well, I re- it was this time of day, and uh, this was, uh, visibility was clear. And I said, if visibility was clear, why would you need a flashlight? I expected at that moment, Judge was going to bang the gavel and say, case dismissed. <laughs> you got him. You know, this is a Matlock moment. I had him. He brought a flashlight while claiming visibility was great. And I said, if, if visibility was so great, what do you need a flashlight for? You carry a flashlight around all day? Hmm? And uh, turns out he doesn't. He didn't have one in court. And so uh, I also had a letter from a mechanic who had examined my car saying that the, this car is not capable of accelerating to 45 miles an hour in this kind of distance, that the transmission's bad. <laughs>
4: So I This car is terrible. This car is so bad. You really, my cousin Vinny did, didn't you? I was,
1: this was a, this was a 1990 Mercury Sable car. Oh, yeah. Okay. I had it in college. It was embarrassing. If I was on a date. Yeah. With a girl. Mm -hmm. It was an embarrassing car to drive because when I would take off at a stop sign, it literally would go, it would vibrate. And so I would have to explain, Hey, this, nothing's happening here. (laughs) This <laughs> car is going to vibrate or I would have to take off from the stoplight really slowly. <laughs> and so I could almost pretend like we're having a conversation and I'm yeah. so into the conversation that I'm almost going to get honked at by the guy behind me because I'm finishing the conversation. So I would try oh, yeah. to do that.
8: Win some points that so way. It, it's a good test,
1: though. It was a good test. Yeah. You know, at the end of. Uh, yeah, it was a good test. To see if they were in it. Exactly. Me. Yeah. Right. There, nobody was like, oh, my gosh, look at his car. Right. Um, so here was the thing. At the end of my whole thing, I thought I had the officer. <laughs> I had proven that the car couldn't go 45 miles an hour. Yeah, I had raised some reasonable doubt about his visibility. Mm-hmm. If it's possible that he needed a flashlight, did he, did he have the right car on radar? Mm-hmm. I had uh, talked about the calibration of the radar. It wasn't like it had been calibrated like a day before. It had been calibrated, you know, like a couple weeks before. Yeah. So I thought I had him. And the judge said, uh, you know, all right, testimony's done. And he said, uh, guilty as charged. And he hit the thing. And then so he did hit the I, I was in disbelief. Okay. And I'm leaving court and the officer and I are leaving together. And he stops me and he goes, Hey, he goes, you did really good in there. And he was like, you know, you did a good job. And then he said, you know, the judge is never going to find for you. Yeah. Unless, you know, there's just clearly been a mistake. Mm. Or he says, if I don't show up, he says, he's always going to support the law enforcement officer. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did that day. Yeah. I was 0-1-1 as an attorney.
4: It was a (laughs) moral (laughs) victory, though.
1: Yeah. I thought I had him. It was a Matlock moment there. I expected music. I expected the episode. Like, dun-dun-dun.
8: Yeah. Feels like kind of more of a night court episode Mm. moment. Yeah. But that's good. That's good. That's very inspiring I, for my court appearance tomorrow. It,
1: it, and I was giving my closing statement. Yeah. I was kind of walking around, walking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. You know?
8: Yeah.
1: And uh, looking around the courtroom
8: <laughs> <Wait>.
1: <laughs> at, at other people who were going to be given their uh, tickets. Yeah. It was, it's traffic court.
8: Gesturing demonstratively. Okay?
1: But I felt like it was 12 angry men. Like I almost got a chalk out and painted like chalked a button. Yeah. And said, if you could just push that button. Mm-hmm. What would you do? Oh. And, but I didn't do that. Yeah. So, but I love the officer as I'm leaving. And he's like, "Hey, you did a really nice job." And he was earnest. Yeah. And it turns out here's the small world thing. So this is in my college town, like four <laughs> hours from where I grew up. Okay. I talked to him and I said, "You look familiar to me." And he <laughs> said, "We grew up in the same small town. He was just older than me." <laughs> I was like, "You even you still gave me a ticket? Come on." No nepotism. Right. Now we have
2: the five, five five at five five the five at five.
8: All right let's start with the trailblazers uh, everyone. One week from today your Portland Trailblazers start their season. they will begin on the road against the Clippers and the odds makers currently have their season win total at 28 and a half.
1: I've done some thinking about this. Okay, first I want to play Chauncey Billups' clip from training camp. Here's where the, the state of mind is of the Blazers.
9: I just thought that it was some good lessons learned for our young guys Scoot, um, just to kind of see, you know, how our game is played and how people are going to play him. And, you know, it was just some great lessons learned. Shaden as well. Um, so, yeah, I thought we got a lot of great things we can take away, you know, from some of our games or most of our games, honestly. But I love to fight man. You know, we've been in some, you know, we've played this team twice. I mean, shoot, this is, you know, the shot-making ability that they have is elite. And it's probably the best in the league. So um, one of the things you got to be careful of playing against them is, one, trying to play like them, and, two, you can't get discouraged when they make shots. They're going to make shots.
1: Blazers lost to the Phoenix Suns to close the preseason. Chauncey Billups talking about it. As Anna pointed out, they open a week from tonight on the road against the Clippers. DraftKings. Kings where you can legally wager in the state of Oregon has the over under win total for the Blazers 28 and a half. I can't see them winning more than 27. That's where I have them, and I think I'm being generous. I think if they start well, they steal some games at the end of the year at the beginning of the year, they could get to about 27. When I saw the number at 26, 26 and a half, I said, "Okay, maybe the over." I'm now thinking under, Stephen, under 28 and a half. What do you think?
4: Yeah, when it comes to gambling, it's all about numbers. Like, when it's 26 and a half, yeah, I feel like that is over. But 28 and a half, that's a lot more in the NBA, especially for a team that's going to be tanking. I agree with you. I think I think 28 is about the right number for the Trailblazers, so I would take the under on that. Number two, Anna, go.
8: Oh, James Harden uh, sticking with basketball for now. He's a no-show at the 76 sixers practice, and he has once again taken off for his home in Houston. As he is demanding a trade. Oh, he's out. Yeah, he was a no-show at practice. He didn't show up for media day. He did this in Houston. He did it in Brooklyn, and now he's doing it in Philadelphia. I don't mm. really understand how somebody can operate this way. Help it's me understand Because
1: you're a normal person, and most normal per- people can't relate to this. It's not a real-world thing. It's players in the nba say they're tired it's not the same as you and i and listeners being tired players in the nba say they're bored it's not the same as you and i and them saying bored we can't we can't relate to it and so you don't relate to a player who says i'm going to take my ball and go home unless you trade me to a better situation because really what james harden the ecosystem that he's living in is the same as like your teenager playing club sports things aren't going well on your club team i'm gonna change clubs he doesn't have a real experience as an adult. And and it's probably not his fault. It's the system. It's the mentality.
8: Yeah, but not every NBA player is behaving this they're way. Not, like the they're not. The 76ers are because, you trying know, to give him the opportunity to explain his unexcused absence before deciding on a problem. Well, because they do,
1: they don't want the, the... They're trying to trade him, and they don't want the trade to lose all value, but he's put him in an untenable position. And it's, it's wrong doesn't make him a good guy, and you're right. Not everybody does it, but there's a lot of this in that league. And I think it has more to do with the lack of maturity, lack of personal growth, and the delusion that is created at age 13, 14, 15 in young basketball players. Think about the league. You're drafted. You're made a multimillionaire. You haven't done anything. It's all on speculation. Yeah. The whole league is built on spec. It's, it's not normal. Like teachers don't go to work out of college and go, hey, all right, we're going to give you uh, ten years, um, seven hundred thousand. That's that'll be your, you know, announced deal plus a signing bonus of uh, twenty-two million. <laughs> and uh, we think you might be a good teacher. <laughs> no, that's not the real world, but that's the NBA.
8: Just shaking my head. You don't
1: see this in the NFL as much. Yeah, because of the guaranteed contracts and because players aren't leaving high school and getting NFL contracts. Hmm. There's there's a bridge there where there has to be some personal growth and you know a little bit of a uh, market correction that happens. Hmm. Number 3.
8: Uh Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington. That's right. Our own Washington here in the Northwest. <laughs> said that uh, she wants any type of congressional legislation related to college sports to cover more than just issues related to NIL. Mm. She wants, and she's in a position to actually make this happen. She's Senate Commerce Committee Chair, and she's actually in charge of the committee that uh, addresses these types of issues. She plans to hold a Commerce Committee hearing in the next 60 days And she wants to talk about the role of university presidents and a changing media environment in the recent conference realignments and the role of boosters in NIL activity and the impact of college sports developments on Title IX and Olympic sports. So she's like throwing a lot of things under the umbrella but I think her quote is interesting. She's saying this race to the top where people are like, yeah, we're going to get the two biggest conferences and the two biggest teams, so we're going to get all the revenue, and then you guys all get you know, short-shifted. I don't think that's what we want, so we're going to have to figure this out.
1: I think lawmakers know that organization of athletes is coming. They know that there's going to be laws passed, and I think they're trying to accomplish other things through it. I'm not saying it's bad. That's the way the world works. But there are other lawmakers who are talking about, hey, why do we have to have NIL legislation that affects all athletes when we're mostly just talking about football players and basketball players to some extent? I think uh, you're going to see a lot of this in the coming couple of months as this stuff is bantered about and laws are passed, federal laws passed.
8: I'm curious, too, because she's saying the fact that college presidents are in the card game, and that's a challenge. I... that's curious to me that she's throwing that in there as something she wants to address. Card game, like they're in this game, oh. the realignment game. All right, they're in the game. You know,
1: I was like, is there really a card game going on? <laughs> what are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah,
8: they're playing blackjack. College
1: presidents playing <laughs> pinnacle? <laughs> like, what would be the game? The Pac-12 presidents are oh, playing cards. Poker. What are they? What are they playing? They're not playing poker. Why are they playing poker? Because none they of them. They all
8: bluffed each they're
1: other. A bunch of nerds. They're not playing poker. They're not sitting around gambling. They're playing solitaire. 12 games of solitaire. <laughs> That's what's happening. The Pac-12 presidents. Maybe a little pinnacle or, or bridge oh, going wow. on. None of them are, like, playing poker. It's not like Steven and I, like, licking a card and sticking it to our forehead and going, higher or lower? <laughs> you know? It's a whole different game.
8: Oh, my goodness. All right.
1: Number four. four.
8: Yes, Four. Uh, The NFL finalizes a contract extension for Commissioner Roger Goodell. He'll be in his position through March 2027. This is his fourth contract extension. He's been the commissioner for anybody who's been keeping track since September 1st of 2006. Uh, The details weren't yet revealed, but Goodell, who is 64, was paid about $64 million uh, during the... 2019-20 2019, 20, and 2021 fiscal years.
0: It's his birthday.
8: Today's his birthday.
1: Well, that that's the uh, that that's the he, yeah. He, it's his birthday. He, he and he got a contract extension oh, on the same day.
8: Happy happy birthday. Yeah, to Goodell. He'll retire. That's a nice gift. Okay, so
1: he's got the knowledge of retiring. He's gonna he's gonna retire with more money than he can ever spend. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know
8: he's done a good job. Yeah, yeah. No.
1: I think he's mostly been good. Mostly? And he's been great for the owners as yeah. the valuation of the teams has skyrocketed. The NFL has kept its position as the biggest game. I do think there's some criticism, and I'm hearing some people kind of, I've heard some whispers about this. The, the college football season, in a lot of ways, is outshining the NFL. Mm-hmm. That's different. Mm-hmm. That hasn't happened with the frequency of this season. There are great games happening in college football, and television is winning. Yeah, Colorado's been a big story. The Oregon-Washington game had 7 million people tuned into it. There are memorable games every weekend. Steven, most memorable game in the NFL this season?
4: Um, <laughs> I'd say... Uh, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, maybe the Cowboys charged it that just happened on Monday night.
1: Yeah, it was all right. It was all right. College football has given us three of those every weekend and Friday nights.
8: Is and it because like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers aren't in the league right maybe, now? Maybe like, that's some of it. This, the, the luster went away. I think
1: there's a little bit of the NFL season feels a little longer than it normally is because it is. Mm-hmm. And the regular season may be not as important and a lot of parody. And I saw a stat just uh, I think a week or two ago. It was about how many NFL games are decided by seven points or fewer. It was like 75% of the games come down to like one score. Mm-hmm. And some of that is fostered by just kind of the way the game is. And it was supposed to bring us all this, um, everybody's got a chance feeling, but there really is a, you know, a feeling week to week that anybody could win. And last weekend was a great example of that I just don't think the games were memorable or exciting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had Colorado, Colorado state captured the country like several weeks ago, in September, late September, the country's watching Colorado Colorado State play. Oregon and Washington captured everybody. There have been some great college football games, not just on the western part of the United States. There have been some great games of the Big Ten and the SEC and memorable, memorable games week in and week out. And the NFL isn't giving that, us that for some reason. I don't know what your theory is.
8: Well, that's interesting because, like you said, parody has been something they've been celebrated for so that any team can win on any given Sunday. And yet, like, the sports fans that I know also love rooting for an underdog, right? We love to know whether an underdog is going to come out on top.
1: I just—I don't think the games in the NFL has been have been as good hmm. as the college games. And it feels that way to me. I don't know. Steven, does it feel like the college season is
4: outshining the NFL? It does this year. Um, I don't—and I'm with you. I don't know why that is ultimately, but I think— the fact that Dion came in and went, brought up so much hype at the start of the season adds to the college football season. But I mean, ultimately the NFL is going to win. The NFL gets better ratings than college football, so I I don't know what it is so far this season. But you're right; like it has been very uneventful except for the Aaron Rodgers injury. Once that you know that happened the first week, I guess that would probably be the most memorable game. Rodgers gets hurt, we talk about it, and then it's kind of gone away after that. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is.
1: I think they're bumping up against playing too many games. I think it's starting to feel like they're right at the cusp of maybe I don't want to say they're turning into the NBA where you play, you know, about twenty too many games. But it feels like they're pushing towards that with the lengthening of the season and an extra game and you can tell from the players, like, you know, the early part of the season it was Philadelphia, Miami, Kansas City, and San Francisco just winning every week. And just kind of humming along till they play each other. And then this last weekend, you had the Eagles lose, you had the Niners lose, and it felt like maybe the teams were just a little uh, not as engaged. I don't know. And the NFL games feel that like they just haven't been as interesting as the college game. I don't know. I'd love to hear from fans and listeners why you think that is. 503-417-7575. Number
8: five. Do you want to know about Terrell Owens? Yeah. What he said about the crash, or do you want to hear about Deion Sanders' book? Both? Okay, Can so five, give... 5A. 5A. Okay, go. <laughs> I, want,
1: I want both of these.
8: Okay, so <laughs> the Tio,
1: Tio or Sanders first? What okay, do you want?
8: T- let's go with T.O. Uh, he, he got hit by a car. He, he did, but he's breaking his silence. In fact, not just that. He's saying he hopes the car is okay.
9: Oh, boy.
8: So this is about 24 Tio. hours after cops say Owens was hit in the knee by a man's car after the two had a beef during a... Game of basketball. He took to Instagram to let people know he's just fine. Thank goodness. Um, he, In fact, he posted what looked like highlights of him playing in that Monday night game. <laughs> and then wrote, hope the car is okay. And added, about last night, but I do have a right to protect myself. No arrests yet, though, made in this incident. So, I don't know.
1: I hope the car is okay, too.
8: Yeah. Okay. And
1: Dion's book. Uh,
8: yes. F- uh, 5B is that Dion Sanders is uh, coming out with a book. There is an advanced report about it. It's going to be about success on and off the field. It will be called Elevate and Dominate, 21 Ways to Win, On and Off the Field, set to come out in March of 2024.
1: Good for him, writing a book or ghostwriting a book. I don't know which, but... Good for him. He's got to win some games. He's got to get his team to stop committing dumb penalties. Is discipline one of the key factors? <laughs> <laughs> Number 22 would have been discipline. And and your kid or your kid's Instagram account posting selling merch at halftime? Stop. That has to stop.
8: <laughs> I, I don't have a, as much of a problem with that as everyone it's else a, does. It's a bad look. Bigger problem, LeBron James eating during the game on the bench while his team is playing. I was going to say the
4: me. exact same thing. There's a time and place for all of it, John. Time and
8: place. Time and place. I,
4: I, I think <laughs> LeBron eating some chicken
1: fingers on the bench is more is less of a problem than Shador Sanders selling merch at halftime of a game he's about to lose. Like, you can't do that while your team's committing 17 penalties and you're not shaking hands at the end of the game and you were waving your watch around the game before. No.
4: Coach, Coach he, Vaughn was terrible. fired up about it because now she said that there's going to be kids in high school that are eating on the sidelines
8: mm. and stuff. Okay, there you go. Coach Vaughn, I go with Coach Vaughn. Me too. Well, to
1: tell them when they, when they beat Kareem for the most points in the NBA, they can eat whatever they want on the bench.
8: <laughs> Sanders, by the way, is also author of the memoir... Power, money, and sex. How success almost ruined my life. That was back in 1999.
1: I'm going to read that. I'm going to read that during (laughs) the commercial break. Leave it here. Coming up, we're going to talk to Spencer McLaughlin, who covers the Ducks for 750thegame.com. Speaking of power, money, and sex, stick around.
9: I think he probably has the quickest release of a a quarterback that we've seen. Um, His scrambling ability is bar none, you know, and and it's not just – you know, scrambling, he just does not go down, right? The guy is really hard to tackle um, when you do get back there. You'll see people hanging on on him, and he shrugs them off and creates an uh, an explosive play. But yeah, his running ability and his quick release are, are two things that really stand out. He throws uh, the deep balls with great touch as well.
1: Dan Lanning talking about Cam Ward, the quarterback that he will face or his team will face on Saturday at Autzen Stadium. Here to talk about it, Spencer McLaughlin. He is our insider for 750thegame.com. You can read him there, and you can hear him now. Spencer McLaughlin, Cam Ward, how big of a challenge is that in the wake of Michael Penix Jr.?
7: Well, I mean, they're very different quarterbacks. You know, I think Ward's most explosive and dynamic plays don't come from the pocket all the time. He can make great throws from there, whereas Penix rarely makes a big play from outside the pocket. There's no right or wrong way to do it, John. It's just... That they've got different styles, and I, I think that Ward presents a sort of challenge for Oregon's front four, which is vastly improved this year. They've already surpassed their stack total from a season ago. They've done it in less than half the games they played last year. So I, I think it's a really, really fun challenge, and Oregon fans should you know remember how how tough Cam Ward can be. He had a big game against the Ducks last season because he's just a really, really hard guy to get on the ground. The, the play that. Sticks in my head from that game is that fourth and I think it was like fourth and six, fourth and five. I don't know. Washington State was being aggressive, and Oregon looked like they had him bottled up. Everybody was covered. They had a quarterback spy on him too, and he just ran around, scrambled, and flicked it out to Nikia Watson as he was falling to the ground and picked up the first. And I, I think that's you know something that that he brings to the table that that, that Penix does not, and that uh, Oregon certainly has to be ready for on Saturday.
1: Dan Lanning saying today that there was good energy at practice uh that, that his team you know has moved forward from the Washington game is there any concern in your mind that Oregon will show up a little flat or emotionally drained after losing to Washington
7: I had that concern before the season I I don't have it now and the, the reason is the way that that game played out yeah it, w- it was gut-wrenching for sure but it wasn't a game in which you ever felt like Oregon was outmatched or overpowered or they couldn't make stops or they were hanging on by a thread just to, just to stay in the game. You know, it, it really felt like those were two evenly matched teams playing a, a really thrilling college football game, and Oregon unfortunately just came out on the losing end of it. So I, I think when you look at the quotes that Ranning has given and the quotes that the players have given, and, and not just what they say but the way that they're saying it, I think they have maintained a pretty high level of belief and confidence, and I think they should. And, you know, they're going to be playing in front of that home crowd for the first time in about a month on Saturday. And I think that helps fire them up as well. You know, I'm curious about Washington state's energy and motivation level right now with their two game skid, which I definitely did not see coming, but I think this is, I think this is an opportunity for the ducks to kind of remind everybody, Hey, we're, we're, you know, we're not going downhill after the Washington game. We understand the goals that are still in front of us. And I, I especially like what Bo Nix said. If, you know We can control uh, plenty about our season, get to the conference championship game, get to the college football playoff. But he's right. He's, he's absolutely right. If Oregon wins out, they're in the college football playoff, no questions asked. A
1: few weeks ago, I was looking at Washington State and going, they could be a real disruptor. Now I'm wondering if the wheels are going to come off. This is a really important game for them. What do you think is wrong at Washington State?
7: Their offensive line is really struggling right now. You know, Cam Ward is a guy, as I said, that makes plays outside of the pocket. He also can make mistakes outside of the pocket or when he doesn't set his feet. I think a lot of his interceptions over the last couple of years have come when he, he doesn't look settled. He doesn't have his feet set. He's not in a good rhythm, and he's not making good decisions, and the offensive line has just been overmatched for the last couple of weeks, and, and frankly, to my surprise, the defensive line has been as well. I mean, you know, you can go back to that Oregon State game. The Bees went up to Pullman, ran for over 240 yards, and, and they don't have a quarterback that's going to run a lot. DJ did run actually pretty well in, in that game now that I think about it, but you know Arizona last week, and that's a good team that tries to be balanced for sure. They went for over 170 yards in Pullman, and I think that's the concerning thing. If I'm a Cougar fan going into this matchup, is well, Oregon's running the ball at a really, really high clip right now. Bucky Irving and Noah Whitting er, and uh, Jordan James, excuse me, in for Whittington are both over seven yards a carry on the season. They're just stupidly efficient and. I, I think that for Washington State, their offensive line's inability to pass block has caused a couple problems, but they've also got no balance, John. They have 47 rushing yards in the last two weeks combined. They, they had 12 in a game. Uh, I forget which one it was against uh, UCLA or Arizona. Like, you know, The game was on the line down in Los Angeles, and you needed a yard, and you go with the quarterback run, which I actually thought was a, was a good play call, because you're trying to get yourself an extra blocker, an extra number in there, and, and they couldn't pick up a yard. And, and that's just, you know, why I you know, have this red flag because I'm a Washington State fan this week. Jake Dicker just said, you know, the 4-0 and team is still in there. They haven't gone anywhere. They just, they're just not playing the best football they can right now. This isn't a game that Oregon can overlook for sure because Ward is capable of being a dynamic playmaker, as Oregon State fans know. But I, I think that Oregon is in a really, really good spot here on Saturday.
1: Jake Dickert, on my show yesterday, said this about Oregon.
7: Well, I think there's two, obviously, really high-powered football teams going
9: at it at the highest level of competition. And it's, it's fun to watch, observe. You know, I think this Oregon team is very talented. But you see Coach Lanning just imprints on the whole roster and just the style and physicality in which they play. Uh, and you, you get a bunch of talented guys, and they play a bunch of them. Uh, playing that hard, you're going to get a lot of great success, and they have elite quarterback play. So you mix all that together, you get one of the best teams in the country. You know, Analytics say this is the most uh, you know, points possession team in the country and, and the top five efficiency of defense, so they're a complete team.
1: I hear Dickard a little bit as a defensive guy acknowledging the challenge that he will endure on Saturday. How important is it in your mind that Oregon plays well in the wake of the Washington game with everything that's ahead of the Ducks?
3: Well, I mean,
7: you always want to come out and play well, but I I think you know if there was a game where they might have a little bit of leeway, I I think it's this one because you know Washington State, and I'm not predicting that, just saying that, like you know against Stanford, they didn't have a great start. It didn't end up mattering, and I don't think you beat Washington State 42 to six if you start slow. You only beat Washington State 42 to six if you start hard and fast and you you know put them away early, force some turnovers, and get a couple fourth down stops. But uh, I, I think that for Washington State in this game, you know, one way that you, you hear teams talk about all the time, or media people talk about all the time, is as to how to slow down a high octane offense. The way that you know Oregon did to an extent against Washington, or the way that USC has had done to them by Utah over the years, is you got to be able to run the football. You got to be able to control the clock a little bit. And you can't do that if you're only throwing it. And you know th- that's why I think this is a troublesome matchup for Washington State is. Oregon's offense is ridiculously balanced and efficient running and throwing the football, and they can't play possession. You know, I I think the game for the Cougars defensively, the game plan is going to be bend but don't break, try to hold Oregon to field goals in the red zone, maybe get them to go for it on fourth down a couple times. Apparently that's a good way to stop Oregon's offense. But I I, I think that it's it's a really, really tough matchup across the board for Washington State because they they don't really have a way – to keep Bo Nix on the sideline and also move the ball down the field to get points because of that just utter lack of a running game. I think their leading rusher last week had like 23 yards on the ground.
1: Spencer McLaughlin, our guest, you can read him at 750thegame.com as our Ducks insider. Bo Nix, I thought he played really well against Washington. I know everyone's pointing at the fourth downs and they didn't get him or you know the plays at the end of the game. I thought he pitched a really good game.
7: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to look at the numbers and, and say otherwise. I think he played an exceptional game, and, you know, Oregon didn't even need a perfect game from him, just needed one more play, and that's, you know, the the margin that, that I was talking about earlier with regards to being on the field against a great team like Washington, and uh, that's what it came down to. You know, I mean, it, at the end of the first half, Lanning, you know, said he looked back in retrospect and, ah, you know, we maybe should have taken a field goal there, and you certainly see arguments, For that in a game that you ended up losing by three and then on the flip side you know there was a questionable no call perhaps from uh on on the fade route to Treshawn Holden but okay you're not going to get those 50-50 shots and he had Treshawn Holden open again later in in the sequence and he wasn't able to hit him he got a little rushed and then on the fourth and goal play you, you know I've heard a lot of fans question like oh man why you sprint now why this play call why that if you go look at it from Bo Nix's angle he, he just he just didn't pull the trigger I, I mean Troy Franklin is there running you know that hard comeback kind of back shoulder fade of, of sorts to the to the near pylon and Bo just has to let it go and he just didn't for some reason and uh, you know or Oregon just needed one play they needed one more play and it's just asking so much from him but uh he he was awesome he's been awesome and you know I I've been talking on on locked on ducks all year long to to not take this guy for granted because he's playing at such a high level just the 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 completion percentage the taking shots down the field completing the easy ones for the most part though not entirely always having a calm presence out there I I never felt like Bo is panicked uh on, on Saturday I never feel like he's in a rush or in a hurry he just seems like he's in complete control out there and he, he's operating at such a high level, in this offense, you know, Coach Dickert talked about the efficiency. That, that all starts with Bo Nix in both the running and passing games because he's, he's just executing everything at a high level, and he's an explosive playmaker to boot. Six
1: regular season games remaining for the Oregon Ducks. Saturday, home against Washington State. A week from now at Utah. Then home games in succession against Cal and USC at Arizona State, November 18th, and then home against Oregon State. What's the toughest game left for the Ducks?
7: Um, is Cam Rising coming back? You going to get Whittingham to give <laughs> you an answer on that one? Cause, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, everybody's guessing at, at, at that point. Um, yeah, a, a friend of mine has, has got some contacts at, at, at the U. Utah, that is, and you know, they thought Cam was playing a couple weeks ago, and and then and then he just didn't, you know? And, I mean, that, yeah. that's kind of the big mystery. And it doesn't look like he's playing this Saturday against USC, which is tough. But if Cam Rising plays, that Utah defense is so good, and Kyle Whittingham is such a good coach situationally, game plan, you know that you the Utes are going to be really, really solid on all of those fronts. So it's Utah if Cam Rising is there. But if it's not, obviously you're looking at USC and Oregon State, and I, I think the Bees are a tougher test right now. But I want to see how, how USC plays this week. Because interesting note on the Trojans, John, I know everyone wants to wants to write them off. Lincoln-Riley teams made the college football playoffs three times in a row in 2017, 2018, and 2019. They lost one game amidst the season in which they were being asked questions about whether or not their defense was good enough they lost one game that was anywhere from their fifth to their eighth game of the season they lost their seventh game of the year last season to utah and they had a bunch of defensive concerns and then they went on to win their conference and or at least appear in the conference championship game or come within spitting distance of the college football playoff and he made it three times oklahoma I, i bring that up to say I think everyone's looking at USC and saying they can't play defense. Well, no, they, they, they really don't. They don't play a lot of defense, and it's never been a part of Lincoln Riley's MO. But it never has been, and he's still won conference championships before. Like, Go look at the numbers that his teams allowed at Oklahoma. They weren't playing any defense. They are just outscoring everybody. And I know everyone's down on Caleb Williams right now, but I'm, I'm going to go out on a big limb here, John, and say that Caleb Williams is not going to throw three interceptions every game for the rest of the season. And I, I, I think that that USC offense has got a lot of weapons, and Caleb is amazing, and Lincoln's a great play caller. So um, I'll, I'll lean USC if Cam Rising is out. But if Cam Rising comes back to play for that Utah game, that's the toughest game on the schedule because uh, the youth haven't lost at home with fans in the stands since 2018.
1: Spencer McLaughlin, I appreciate you. I will see you in the press box. You can read him at 750thegame.com. The question I asked in the 5 at 5, why is the college football season outshining the NFL? Help me with that. Why is it that the college football season seems more interesting right now than the NFL games? Can you put your finger on it? 503-417-7575. College football has given us some fantastic and memorable games to start this season. Why has the NFL not appeared to have been as... Interesting. What is that about? I want you to tell me at 503-417-7575. Literally, what is that about? You tell me. Uh, Steven, you've weighed in. I've weighed in. I want to go to the phone lines. Jim is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports. Eugene, Jim, go ahead. What do you think it is?
3: John, I think the answer is simple. I said you just had an interview that lasted about 18 minutes. But 16 of that 18 was passion. He was talking about passion. And, you know, in college sports, we have passion. In professional sports, it's just the fat guy sitting on the couch on a Sunday doesn't have anything else to do <laughs> and trying to watch people run around in circles. I think there's even a rebuttal from Las Vegas, meaning the fact that if you're going to lose your money, you're going to lose it on Saturday, but you're going to get some excitement out of the whole thing. And, you I know, that. The, and the, the truth of the matter is, I listen to your program for one reason. What? Passion. You talk about humanistic things and mm-hmm. I think there's your answer. Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Uh he's talking about the passion of the game. The NFL did the NFL lack passion? 503-417-7575. Is he right, Stephen?
4: I think he could I think he's on to something. And this is what I've been talking about when it came to you know the conference realignment was the thing College Football has going for it is you know, the alumni and like the passion of that of that, you know, caller said right there. The fans, they have a true love for the game. The product is never gonna be as good as it is in the NFL. The NFL just has better players and better athletes. Um, and so you're never gonna match that. And so I don't like the fact that it seems like Collet is trying to go to like a NFL uh you know mini minor system. Uh, you gotta you gotta embrace the passion. I think they've done that this season, uh, especially, you know, with the with Deion Sanders and the college football world all over that story, and then you look at uh, you know Oregon, now everyone's on them, or Washington, and you you embrace the crowd. And Kirk Kerbster even said it after the Washington-Oregon game. He said, look, I do Thursday night footballs. I do, do Thursday night football on prime, and th- there's no atmosphere like it is on a Saturday when there's a big-time game. So I think that may be uh, one of the big reasons why, especially this season, when fans are really going for their teams because for a while there, especially here in the back 12 it was unknown where every team was going and what was going to happen to the conference.
1: I love that. Is it the passion? Is it that people are um, engaged in a different way with the, uh, with the college teams and the pro teams? You tell me, 503-417-7575. I have to, I have to ask Judah. If, you, if Judah's not too busy right now because he is an NFL guy, is there something to the idea that it is passion? Is it something else? Why have the college games delivered maybe more so than the than the NFL games?
0: I, this is interesting. I I don't understand the passion uh, argument. You see the. Fans face painted in the crowd. Like, I'm a Seahawks fan. You just take one look at, you know, the Seahawks stadium and say that there's not passion there? Like, to me, that doesn't make any sense. I I think this is one of those topics where it's we're in a college market. So, there's going to be a lot more college football fans that resonate, I think, with the college football product. And some of that, to me, is actually because of the, um, you know, in the NFL, everybody is so famous, so visible, and so... You know, everybody knows the narrative with every team going back decades. The the college football game, it almost benefits from the fact that the players on an individual level, aside from a handful of quarterbacks, are not as popular. They're not as talked about. They're not as widely known on a day in, day out basis. They come up and, and pop up on your screen over, you know, seven million people in the case of Oregon and Washington on an October Saturday once in a while. But these aren't Mahomes-level, even Russell Wilson, who's not good anymore, like namesakes uh, in, in homes. And I think that almost benefits college football from an attractiveness standpoint because now you're really just rooting for the brand. And the brand year over year over decades and generations and families and coaches and quarterbacks. And that's where a more grassroots level of passion, I think, manifests. And it's a beautiful thing. But I'm not sure it's... More passion. I don't know if it's quantifiable like that. Is it different, though, because, you know, you didn't
1: go to the University of the Seattle Seahawks, you know, and somebody somebody went to Washington. I don't know. Let's go to the phone lines. Joe in Portland. Joe, what do you think?
3: Hey, love the show. Just wanted to chime in. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a passion issue. I think that there's no single great storyline to really hold on to. So, like, Mahomes is not playing great. Um,
7: some of the older quarterbacks are out of the league or hurt like Aaron Rodgers. Um, You know, you don't have any more undefeated teams. Uh, You have a bunch of rookie quarterbacks trying to find their way. Um, The Detroit story, just we're not going to find it sexy enough because it's Detroit. So you just don't have one thing, like the NBA always has LeBron. Um, We just don't have one thing to hang their hat on with Tom Brady gone and Aaron Rodgers not playing and Mahomes not putting out his best product
1: appreciate that. I appreciate that. I love that. I, I am going to pay attention this weekend, both to college football and to the NFL, maybe with the NFL starting on Thursday night football, at what is happening, what isn't happening on the field in the games with the players, the connection we do or don't have. Is it rooted in something else? Are we watching NFL athletes that are playing too many games maybe? Going through the motions, or are we desensitized to the NFL in a different way? Are we waiting for the playoffs? to Because I, I agree with Judah's comment. Like, there are some fan bases in the NFL that are rabid. I mean, it's undeniable. But why are, why are the games better? The games are more—I mean, I shouldn't say better. Should, the games are more memorable. I find myself on a week-to-week basis remembering what is happening in college football and watching what is happening in the NFL. I'm, I'm watching the games, but it doesn't look as memorable to me, as unique, as different. Stanford, Colorado, that was memorable. Oregon, Washington, memorable. You know, we'll talk more about this on tomorrow's show.